So what I'm doing tonight is I got a challenge for you. And I ain't got much to offer you because the beer's spoken for. But what I do got is I got a spot. A spot with the four horsemen. Not just a spot, not a liver spot, not a spot like your dog spot. No, not just any spot, but my spot. <laughs> James J. Dillon injured now, out of commission on the shelf, not able. To... We have someone in the ring, and I don't. I believe that may be a fan. And security has come out. As the fan has come in, and we're going to focus on... And the smallest referee in the world just took him down. Well, How tough know, is that guy? You're not kidding. <laughs> you see that front face lock by Mark Curtis? That'll teach you to get in the ring. You're not kidding. <laughs> Him out, throw him in the front row. What, I mean, what else? This is a horrible scene. This is a this is a this is a horrible scene. This, uh, man, I'm sorry. All right, boys. Either you surrender, or old nature boy here gets the guillotine. What? What? I think I gotta stay. You gotta stop this. You can't Hey, guys. Yep. He said stop it. Mongo said stop it. stop it. All right. He said stop it. Yeah. All right. The main thing to do. That's right. That's right. Before Flair gets gets nailed, before he gets his head shut here, before... Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Five guys beat me up. You know why? Because I was stupid enough, complacent enough, and that far off the razor's edge to let it happen. Four years ago, I'd have left Henning laying a week before that match happened. That's complacency. That's the wake-up call. So, Kurt Henning, know this. The stitches are out next week, and Ric Flair will be right back in your face the day that he can be there on Nitro. Hello, my name is Bob Bamber and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast going back in the time machine to September of 1997 for Volume 1 of this month's show. Three volumes for you this month across four different parts. Volume number 2, Part 1, takes to the WWF looking at their Ground Zero pay-per-view. Volume 2, Part 2, takes us to England as WWF put on their one-night-only show from the Birmingham NEC. And Volume number 3 takes us to ECW looking at their As Good As It Gets shows. Uh, we are a bit transatlantic today for WCW. It's a good evening from London. It's good afternoon to Jeff Parker. Jeff, good afternoon. Good afternoon. And good morning, Eric Landstrom. Eric, hello. Good morning. Eric, kick us off with the news. Ric Flair disbanded the Four Horsemen after being written off of television uh, to go and have what apparently is a facelift. 
while Flair could return as early as next month. In storyline, he was smashed in the head with a cage door in War Games by Kurt Hennig, who, to no major surprise, turned on him and joined the NWO. The main event of the Horsemen versus the NWO came about after an angle at the opening of September where Kevin Nash and Six parodied the retirement of Arn Anderson. When Flair returns, he will have his sights set on Hennig, but also, seemingly, they are rebooting things between Flair and Hulk Hogan. Hennig joining the NWO was the conclusion of the main event at Fall Brawl, a card that was mostly only announced on the week of the show itself. The NWO defeated the Four Horsemen in the main event after Steve McMichael quit. Lex Luger and Diamond Dallas Page were, were originally slated to be in that match. Instead, they faced Scott Hall and Randy Savage. After Hall leveled every referee in sight, Larry Zbysko counted a fast three count to start a feud between himself and Scott Hall. There were also wins for Eddie Guerrero, the Steiner Brothers, Alex Wright, Jeff Jarrett, Rath and Mortis, and the Giant. Perry Saturn was signed by WCW in what they are attempting to be a big rate of ECW talent, which otherwise didn't work. You can hear more about it in our ECW show this month, but Todd Gordon was let go by ECW after being outed as a mole acting as a go-between for some of ECW's talent. The attempt to sign talent was otherwise unsuccessful, with offers made for everyone from Shane Douglas to Chris Candido and New Jack to Tommy Dreamer, who was personally called by Raven. Saturn's deal is a one-year contract. However, his future is in doubt after re-injuring his knee, something which WCW put in his contract as a break clause. Ric Flair's contract expires in January and Hulk Hogan's in December. Don't expect either to go anywhere, mind. If Hogan's contract runs down, he has creative control over match finishes, which could compromise the Sting match. Reports are that Hogan may end up splitting away from the NWO after Starcade, but this seems a long shot given how successful the NWO is and the prospective feud with Flair. Kevin Nash tore knee ligaments in his knee and could be out for a few months if he has surgery. Scott Hall, too, was taken, on crutch, was taken out on crutches on Nitro the same month. WCW's new Thursday show will begin on the first week in January. WCW are also planning on running a Nitro at the Georgia Dome in Atlanta that week, too. And a reminder that we're on Patreon for five bucks a month. If you'd like to say thank you and get early access to shows where possible, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash wrestling20rs. Links on our website and in the podcast description. On to the TV ratings for the month, starting on September the 1st. There was no Raw. That was the second of the uh, preempted shows. So Nitro did a 4.8 in its absence. On September the 8th, Nitro did a 4.3 to Raw's 2.2. On September the 15th, Nitro did a 3.9 to Raw's 2.6. September September the 22nd, Nitro 3.7 to Rules 2.4, and we don't yet have ratings for the 29th. We'll cover those next month. Kurt! I don't mean to put you on the spot here, brother. Woo! But everybody's dying to know. It's been two months, and we gotta know. Are you in? Are you out? Woo! They're making a whole mockery. Well, I tell you, Rick, you have put me on the spot here. Woo! You know I got a dog named Spot. Woo! Just to sum it up, you put me on the spot. Woo! But as bad as I hate to say it, woo! 
I can't give you or these people an answer tonight. Woo! You know, last week was was one of the greatest moments. You know something, Kurt Hennig. <laughs> and this has gone right. I knew that you were going to give us that answer, so I took it upon myself to give all these people a big surprise. Right now, what well, I'd like to introduce to you my best friend, the enforcer of the Four Horsemen, Arn Anderson. Woo! Double A, Daddy, you're looking great. I know you were taking care of more important business for, for a second. I'll take care of horseman business. Before I go any further, let me let all the horsemen out here know one thing. Guys, the beer's on ice. All right, Daddy. Woo! Gong them. You know something is pretty ironic? That on Labor Day, WCW would decide to honor me because anybody that's followed my career knows one thing. Y'all was wondering when I was going to go into labor. You know, I sat back there today and I watched that highlight tape of my career and I said to myself, you know, I'm a guy of average size, average speed, average quickness, average looks, average intelligence, average carpentry skills. But you know what? I parlayed that into a wrestling career that, if I may say so myself, was quite excellent. We start the month with a very good double-A video package showing highlights of Arn's career from the Minnesota Wrecking Crew to the Horseman and tonight's three-hour season three premiere to the Enforcer. We then get last week's retirement program and the Henning hiring. First up, it's Eddie and Jarrett with Deborah against McMichael and Benoit with Flair and Henning. Nice stuff for Guerrero and Benoit, white hot crowd and Mongo pins Jarrett. We then get Lex Luger thanking Arn. After commercial, Hall and Savage take over the desk and wish us a happy Labor Day. Mortis beats the Silver King we nearly get to our two before the Nitro girls turn up. Next, we see highlights of Arn turning on Dustin Rose from a few years ago for a JJ Dillon recap. In the main event of our number one, Dima Lanko beats Huzi Nagata and DDP gives his thoughts on double A. The Nitro Girls start off our number two and Tony Hawk's the Nitro Party Pack again. La Parker arrives with Sonny Ono to face the Ultimo Dragon. La Parker tries to chair Dragon but it backfires for the Dragon win. Afterwards Ono gets the Dragon Sleeper. We see double A from Starcade 85 talking to Lance Russell. It's then Dell's main event as Buff Bagwell takes on Glacier. Bagwell mocks Glazer before posing, but after interference from Vincent and a blockbuster, the streak, like Dell's heart, is broken. Lismark beats either Viano 4 or 5 and we hear from Lex Luger. He plays up the tension between him and Paige for their match with Hall and Savage later. We get a Roddy Piper video package, then see more Nitro Girls. This time they're not joined by Alex Wright, but the returning Disco Inferno. 
right then arise and they trade dance moves. Yes, that really happened. Das Wunderkid defended his TD title in the last match round number two against Hugh Morris with the assistance of Disco. We hear Brian say 10 seconds isn't enough for Anderson. He wishes he had longer and see another Sting package. Raven's still sitting at ringside as Stevie arrives on a lovely Stevie equals Nitro Ratings t-shirt. He's due to face Damien, but Raven jumps over the rail, DDT's Damien on the floor, and bemoves Stevie tries CPR on the down Mexican. A slap from Raven is enough for Richards to go for the pin and win. Big Boy Rogers is out with Mean Gene, but he says he's now back, he's learned the NWO crap, and now he's Ray Trailer. He downs Prince IOK with a sidewalk slam. Brain still got it. Trader spells out his surname. Bobby says six months ago he couldn't spell the first. JJ calls on an icon and Gene talks about his retirement speech when the Horseman Music's hits. But it's Conan as Mongo and Six as Flair. Buff comes out as heading as they rip on last week. Kid woos every five seconds and we get Nash, Pillow Belly, Bald Wig and Beer Cooler as Arn Anderson. It's Labour Day and he's still not gone into labour. Six fake cries and Nash delivers Arn's promo. After the pantomime, they strip out the latest NWO shirt with four horses' asses on the back. Jericho's out to face Chavo, but Eddie arrives with the mic to stop Chavo damaging the Guerrero name further. The Cruiserweight locker room arrives and we basically get an ad hoc battle royale. Comes down to Eddie and Jericho, we cut to commercial and no one wins. Hogan and Bischoff come out, they run down Sting and Dylan arrives. Hogan says he has an answer for Sting. He clocks JJ, leg drop and gets tagged. Main event time, decent action but a stewy finish as standard. Luger thinks he has the win with the rack on Hall but Patrick missed the tag and counts Savage's pin. What it was to me was sand ticking down through the hourglass and everybody knows so are the days of our lives. You know, one thing you could say when Arn Anderson was coming to town, besides the fact that I left a lot of unpaid bar tabs, was Arn Anderson was coming to town. And you knew if I was on the card, I was going to give you 100%. No matter how drunk, how hungover I was, I was going to give you all I had. And back in those days before the NWO, you eight people that bought those tickets got one heck of a show. But you know what? As I come out here tonight, I ask you people, don't remember how I used to be. Remember me how I look right now. We've reached the lowest point Good ever on this on this program. We have. So Kurt, that puts me and you. And I got a challenge for you. Wait a second. I don't want to fight you because I ain't won one in 20 years. What I got for you is a challenge. Because as much as I want to be a horseman, I know if I come out here right now, I not only put him in danger, but I put my best friend in danger. And I can't do that. So what I'm doing tonight is I got a challenge to you. 
And I ain't got much to offer you because the beer's spoken for. But what I do got is I got a spot. A spot with the four horsemen. Not just a spot, not a liver spot, not a spot like your dog spot. No, not just any spot, but my spot. So I need to know right now, do you accept it? My spot, not their spot, liver spot, dog spot, anybody's spot, my spot, to become a four horseman. Not my spot, anybody's spot, dog spot, liver spot, my spot. As much as I want to say I'm a double-A fan, as much as I want to say I like to be a four horseman, it's hard to say because I don't like you and I don't like the four horsemen. But I tell you what, it would be an honor. So we start on the first night try of the month. There's only really one place to start. One of the... Certainly the biggest story of the show, perhaps the biggest story of any Nitro this month and possibly one of the bigger Nitro segments of the year. Uh, following on from the, the the segment at the end of last month where Arn Anderson retired, uh, we essentially got a parody, remake, whatever you want to call it, with the uh, members of the NWO, Kevin Nash, Six, uh, Marcus Bagwell and Conan, essentially parodying the, the, the segment where Arn Anderson retired. Um and the real reaction was interesting. Um, essentially, you know, I mean, you'll have heard it all just then, so I can only really describe to you the bits you obviously couldn't see, um, which was Six kind of, you know, dressed up as Ric Flair with the kind of, you know, the light blonde wig and the, the oversized nose. And then we had, you know, Bagwell doing his best to, to try and look anything like Kurt Hennig and Conan similarly with Steve McMichael. Um, no Chris Benoit. Apparently they were going to use a mannequin, but that didn't, uh, that didn't come across, and we'll find out why on the following show. Um, and then we have Kevin Nash dressed up as Arn Anderson in a you know in a shirt that had some like a cushion underneath it to make him look fat, and he had the kind of you know the uh, of what you want to call it, the, the the makeup, the kind of skin, the fake skin covering his hair, and he had like you know the the flecks of hair to try and mimic what Arn Anderson looked like. And we essentially got a massively long version of the Arn Anderson promo. Um, you know, it was oh god, I'll throw it at the floor, Jeff. What do you think of the segment? Um, I think, you know, with the end of Fall Brawl after that, um, I thought it was pretty excellent in certain ways. I thought Six in particular was great, um, especially because there's an argument that Ric Flair has become more and more of a complete parody of himself, especially his promos over the past decade. Um, and since Six is often the fall guy for the NWO, I think there's great potential for like a Six Flair program, which, um, you know, they could have even factored into the Fall Brawl War Games match, which we can, you know, go forward. They didn't. Um, for me, the NWO mock promo, it was an excellent way to build heat off of an emotional angle to lead up to a payoff at, at War Games. Um, although in typical WCW fashion, it's it's never a good way, never a good form to uh, expose and mock your babyface's obvious weaknesses, whether it's Flair being old or, you know, Chris Benoit being a mannequin. Um, and, you know, I get the Horsemen not having reprisal. It doesn't really make much sense unless they get their revenge at the pay-per-view, which they didn't. So it just all felt very, uh, 
it felt like it was entertaining a few people, and uh, that's kind of par for the course when it comes to Hall and Nash, where they're they're in it to entertain themselves. Um, I didn't think it was really necessary when you hear Flair refusing to go out to do a promo and how it upset Arm because it's like this is a stable that fashioned themselves after being hard partiers and living that jet set lifestyle and. You know, it's it's fairly silly for the horsemen to go, you know, shoot heated over the NWO calling them booze hounds when they kinda were and are or whatever. Um, again, I thought I thought Nash was pretty self aggrandizing in this and I'm not a big Nash fan, so I thought he was kind of went probably a little overboard, but that's just Nash trying to entertain himself. Yeah, Eric, I, I think the you know the, the the plan as it start as it stood, um, probably up until the day of the show, was going to be that they were going to do exactly what they did, and then the horsemen were going to kind of come out and clean house at the end, and then Ireland was going to be still on the stage, and then was going to kind of yeah applaud and show his appreciation for for the new horseman having his back, and then Kevin Nash got in Eric Bischoff's ear and went, ah, maybe we're not going to do that, maybe we'll save their retribution for next week. Eric, was that just Nash being Nash, or was there any kind of sense to that? I don't know. I, I with the it was weird that there was no retribution on on the show itself, and even further strange, as Jeff pointed out, that there was no retribution at the show. So uh, that being said, you would assume WCW would be wise enough to book initially have booked something where the Horsemen could get their their heat back one form or another. That said, this is also WCW, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they either didn't book it. Uh, that way in the first place and are now kind of covering their tracks so they didn't seem like they were just trying to uh, do something illogical once they realized it wasn't uh, it didn't come off on television how they wanted it to or it is also extremely plausible that they did change it uh, for for Nash and and he lobbied a little bit backstage uh, to get it changed the problem is we just don't know and and what we have is the segment that came off on television as as hilarious and, and and too funny I think to to really get any heat on anybody because it's hard to hate somebody that you're laughing at. And I found Nash here was great. Conan was super underrated as Mongo with his mannerisms and the gum and the football. And and so it, it came off as weird on television, and it makes a lot of sense to think, oh, it was initially supposed to go one way, and it didn't. And that's why it came off as weird. But uh, it was an entertaining segment, and I didn't think it was hurt so badly by the lack of a payoff on Nitro it was hurt more in hindsight when they failed to pay anything off at the, at the pay-per-view. So, yeah, I, I think it's perfectly plausible that they changed it. I also think it's perfectly plausible that they didn't think it enough through to need to change anything. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, the, 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 the plan after that um, was that Flair was going to come out and cut a promo later, and apparently they were saying that, you know, Flair was steaming about so much backstage that he just you know, wasn't in the mood to do it. Um, or whatever, and you know, it seems like that you know, uh, you know, basically the the undercurrent of heat from this segment seems to be more backstage political than it does seem to be actual storyline based. As in, uh, Eric, I kind of agree with you that you know, Six was excellent in this role. This is possibly the best thing Six has ever done. Um, that's not that's not a, a massively high bar. Um, but Six was great, and you know he was cracking up the crowd, and and Nash was just about making it work. I mean, the segment went on forever. I mean, you know they were they were parodying a promo that was three minutes long, and the whole thing went about eleven minutes. Um, and you know some of that comes with exaggeration and whatnot, and yeah, you know, they just about held it together. But I, I think they could have cut two or three minutes off and and kind of got what they wanted it to. Um, but yeah, like it, it seems like a lot of the 
the, the viewpoint that Arn Anderson had and the viewpoint that Ric Flair had was that Nash was taking the piss out of Anderson's mother, um, basically, because apparently she used to have, have alcohol problems. Um, but again, it, it feels like one of those things, and not for the first time this month, where or not for the last time in the month, sorry, in that it feels like they're overthinking things. It feels like they're in, they're, they're thinking that everyone knows everything. I mean, there's a segment later in the month, I don't think we'll, we'll come to it after the pay-per-view, um, but where Jacqueline gets on the mic at ringside and, and, and calls out Disco Inferno and says, everyone knows why you left. Are you referring to that one-liner we mentioned about six months ago where Disco Inferno got booted because he refused to do a job for Jacqueline? And I, she said that, and I think that there was like this pause, this great big reaction, and no one went with it. And I got a feeling a lot of people backstage went, "Oh, now she's taking the piss out of Arnold's mother." And I, I don't, I don't get the feeling that carried across. Um, I, I, yeah, um, Jeff, what do you think about Eric's comment? Was this segment too funny to really gain heat? Because I'm not sure it gained the kind of volcanic heat that some people backstage seem to have thought it did. And Flair's always been very touchy and insecure about being represented as too old or, or, you know, his nose. Like, back to the Terry Funk feud in 89, he had some promos that Terry Funk cut about, you know, him being yellow-bellied and, and even going back to the Hollywood Blondes and the Flair for the old skits to try to get heat on Arn and, and, and Flair. Flair's been very insecure about that type of thing. And then, you know, for him to throw a tantrum here, I mean, I think it's I think it's that it just – they're not the cool guys anymore. And I, it, I understand why – there could be heat, but it just for me. I just I didn't think it was funny the 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 NWO thing or or enough to be a babyface promo like like you know it could be construed by some. I just no. I just if if it's building to a to a payback revenge type spot down the line for the Horsemen, uh, now that's probably what maybe Flair is ticked off because he knows how they're going to play it. Um, yeah, I, I didn't see the big deal about it. Yeah, um, yeah, it would be the would be the first thing involving Kevin Nash that that, that seemed to be building to something or seemed to look like it would have to be building to something given how one sided it was and then never did. And it takes a takes a look across the room at Rey Mysterio. Um but you know, yeah, it was you know, I, whether they should have come out and flattened them I don't know. Um to me, that perhaps would have made more sense than them doing nothing. And I think if Flair was right about one thing, it was, well, the minute they didn't come out and interfere during the segment, there wasn't really any point in cutting a promo back that night. Um, you know, WCW kind of said, oh, yeah, we're, we're hearing Flair and our answer being held back backstage. Like, that made any sense. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I think if, if you're a casual viewer and you're watching, you probably quite liked it, unless you're a hardcore Arn Anderson fan. But I think the things that Arn Anderson seemingly was quite angry about, and Ric Flair was quite angry about, I don't get the thing, the sense carried over. Um, but, yeah, I mean, also interesting that at the... At the time this was shot, the plan for the main event of Full Brawl, I believe, was the NWO against the team of Ric Flair, uh, Lex Luger, Dandas Page, and I think the Giant. I think that was the, the, the quartet they were going with. And then at some point along the way, or it, it wasn't the Giant, it would have been Kurt Hennig. And then some point along the way, they went, oh, this has got a bit more heat than we thought. So they took, you know, Giant got put in a match with Scott Norton. They pulled Luger and Page out for a match against Scott Hall and Randy Savage at the pay-per-view, which probably helped kind of uh, extend the depth of the card. Um, and then to tell you how late they were planning, they had Chris Benoit in Japan for this pay-per-view is, is, as it stood at the beginning of the month. And then they had to say, actually, Chris, we're going to send you a few days later so that you can uh, 
so that you can do this show. But, yeah, a, a very interesting, noteworthy angle. Got a lot of people talking, which I suppose is always good. Um, and prolonged a story. We haven't qu- I don't think we've quite got the pay-per-view bar ads in yet, so we'll have to wait and see kind of what that difference that may have made at the box office. Um, but a very interesting segment. Gene, 25 years... I've gone up and down the highway, I've flown in every airplane possible, I've wrestled every arena, I've wrestled every big name player in the world. I last week, for the first time, was embarrassed to tell anybody in this world that I was a professional wrestler. And I'll tell you why. Because we just showed one more time why there's nothing sacred in life in a sport of pro wrestling. Iron Anderson, whether you liked him, didn't like him, followed his career, didn't follow his career, he is a legitimate, legend, human being, and a man. And above all else, I underline the word man. WCW, did something so huge by dedicating that night, that evening, to his career that everyone in the sports world should have recognized that he was a great performer every day of his career. Yeah, that's right. Now, I go to Nash, Six, Conan, Bagwell, Gentlemen, I want to tell you that 17 years in your career, you're going to be famous. I can't promise you that. I want to tell you, you're going to be good. I can't promise you that. But most of all, I want to tell you this. The day you leave your livelihood, and there's someone standing next to you with a tear in their eye, you're a lucky man because, buddy, at the end of this road, if there's one person in the world you can say is your friend, that is for life. And Ed Anderson is my friend. Tony and Larry welcome us along with the Nitro Girls. They remind themselves to build the war games that's in six days. As Larry starts to talk about the NWO, Bischoff interrupts. Back from highlights of last week, the horsemen have took over the desk and say they have a challenge. Gene talks them into the ring and they call out the NWO and Bischoff. As we're in Packer country, Mongo gets booed. Flair saves it, looking very serious. He talks about Arn and says last week he felt shame for the first time ever. Back from commercial, the horsemen are still here saying they won't leave until they have a match. Security escort them away and Eddie arrives to take on a returning Rey Mysterio Jr., Ray winning with a springboard Hurricane Rana. Nitro Girls, Nitro Party Packs, Gene then talks to DDP. He talks about Luger's respect and the war games. Lex says they'll sort this deal tonight. The Disco Inferno is officially back and despite Alex Wright, loses to Hugh Morris. The NWO accept, arrive and accept the Horseman's earlier challenge. Brad Armstrong then takes on Jericho but Eddie interrupts. Armstrong's having none of it and Jericho gets the DQ after Eric Jer- Guerrero cuts in. Bischoff and Hogan kick off hour number two and we see Dylan getting down from last week. Hogan says his title's on the line for Sting tonight. 
We then get Sting crashing in from the roof, but it's a mannequin who then gets pinned by Hogan with Bischoff counting. Lee Marshall phones at his Nitro party and the Steiners beat Meng and Barbarian. Scott Hall reconfirms he's the worker of the NWO by beating Super Kalo, but Ray Trader arrives to clean house. Hogan comes out to distract and they beat Trader down and he gets tagged. Hogan calls in the big lost man. Malenko vs Psychosis and in one of the spots of the year Mark Curtis stops a fan running in by kneeing him in the face and nailing a front face lock on him tight until security arrives. This really is quite a good match but after the fans are escorted out that's all the crowd really care about and Malenko wins. Jarrett arrives saying he's bringing the excitement, well been waiting years for that. Gene arrives to introduce the new interim WCW commissioner in the absence of JJ Dillon to Rowdy Roddy Piper. He name drops the WWF, says he'll make the Hogan Sting match happen, but not before Hogan and Piper in a steel cage next month. And War Games is officially NWO versus Horseman. We bleed into our number three, but we stay live for the double main event first. Conan and Bagwell against Flair and Henning. The Horsemen go at it, they clear house, then it settles down for Henning and Flair get the win. Next, it's Paige and Luger. DDP's in control, but the NWO arrive and get digs in on Lex. They try again, but Paige battles them, and funnily enough, we get a Nitro main event thrown out. Luger and Paige shake hands as we go into full brawl. It's like putting John Belushi in charge of a frat house. You folks ain't seen nothing yet. And that's mild. I got an idea. We had better hold on to our hats. Hang on. I have been president of the WWF. <laughs> well, a very popular position. And now I'm chairman of the board because I can't be fooled. I don't take dives and I don't do windows. I ain't putting up with no whining wrestlers. When I tell you to eat your broccoli, you're going to eat your broccoli. As long as J.J. Dillon is out, I am in. And I'm going to tell you three things tonight I'm changing right away. Uh First of all, there's been a guy hanging from the rafters for a long time. There's been a guy in here with a well-dressed tan that's been saying he wants Sting. Well, it seems to me that it must be my job to create this. If Sting wants Hogan, and if Hogan wants Sting like he says, I say that I will do my best to take these two, put them in the ring, and what I say, we put them and give them a world title, and we do it before 1997. Before the year is out, that would be a big one. It will happen. Number two, Hogan. Hogan wants everybody. Let me make your dreams come true. I am the only man that has an open contract from the last Halloween Havoc that Hogan has signed that old airhead back there has forgot about. 
Well, I have a proposition. This is what I'm going to do. I'm the chairman, right? I can do what I want, right? You can. Okay. This is it, boys. Halloween Havoc, a 20-foot steel cage. Hogan, Piper inside. Oh. We fight till the finish. Yeah. Yeah. I will make Mike Tyson look like a vegetarian. I will make Hogan look like he's got the E. coli. I will bring the hell back to Halloween Havoc. Moving on to the second Nitro of the month. Um, Eric, a segment that doesn't seem to have registered as much on many people's radars, but I, I seem to have been a bit more uncomfortable with than, than others were. I mentioned in, in, in the review of the first show about the potential use of a mannequin for Chris Benoit, and originally the story at the time was they thought the, that, you know, implying you know, Benoit had no, like, no character or whatever, uh, that they thought that logistically trying to get a mannequin in the ring would be difficult, so they thought they wouldn't bother. As it turns out, they, they actually used the mannequin for this second week, as they dressed it up as Sting, stuck it in the rafters, and then sort of kind of dropped it from the rafters to the floor. Um, Eric, it doesn't seem to be a segment that particularly offended anyone, that it necessarily offended me, but I, I didn't think it was in great taste. I think that's exactly the way to capture it. It wasn't particularly offensive, and and it wasn't if they had played it off any more like it would it, there had been an accident or that something actually bad had happened. But from from my memory of watching this, it, uh, fortunately, I think and the reason why there's not more heat on on WCW or or why the segment didn't come off as as distasteful as it could have was pretty quickly it was made apparent that this was uh, Hogan and 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 Bischoff and those guys uh, trying to trying to ruse the crowd or trying to um, uh, trying to parody Sting. So uh, you know, as far as executing what was an otherwise you know poorly planned and distasteful segment, if you're going to go with it, at least make sure you do it in such a way where the crowd doesn't immediately turn on you or lose their lose their stomachs because they think somebody's plunged from the rafters. It also looked pretty bad uh, right away, and so. It wasn't as if they used a very realistic-looking mannequin or doll, and so I think all these things came together where it was a it was a bad idea. It didn't come off very well as an effective segment. If it had been played up any more seriously, then I think there would be not only heat on WCW, but that stemming from a segment which otherwise wasn't very good, I think, would have been a, a complete disaster. So, yeah, not not controversial at all, and, and executed in such a way where it wasn't great, but uh, wasn't particularly offensive. Just kind of dumb. Jeff. Yeah, I had no problem with it. Um, in 1997, you, you want to do things that are going to be kind of edgy and, and on the edge of reality. Uh, if you look at Sting, what's his act right now? It's repelling from the ceiling and dressing like the crow. So outside of, like, you know, I don't know, bring back, back Brendan Lee from the dead, they can't really do much to really get heat on that Sting character, so they made fun of him by repelling from the, the rafters. I mean, it's pro wrestling. Uh, Jerry Luller has been run over by a car, so I, I don't see how this could be seen in poor taste in 1997 when, you know, it's just it's just a, a cheesy pro wrestling angle. Uh, well, I'm guessing Luller bit of your credit for wrong, I don't, I don't recall the angle, but I'm guessing Luller being run over a car wasn't done inside a wrestling arena. I was down right outside, and he legitimately let himself get hit by a car. So, well, um, again, it's it's the 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 litmus test for you know taste in pro wrestling. I don't even really think exists. Uh, so, therefore, I, I really don't have a an objectionable stance on it. 
Uh, I think it makes Hogan come across as cheesy, which doesn't really fly with that cool NWO vibe. But then again, that makes Hogan a better heel for the Sting program. So again, uh, I didn't have a problem with it. I just thought it was just another silly, stupid WCW angle. Yeah, uh, you, you both may be right. It, it, it just to me, like you know, the the announcer's reaction was weird in the. You know, because what I'm what I'm kind of getting at is, it, you know, we, we, Eric talks about the mannequin not looking particularly convincing, and, and once you kind of see it, they were right. But it it looked quite good when they shot it from the ground when it was coming down. Like it looked, yeah, the legs were kind of wobbling about. It wasn't like it was just a you know a straight board, and you know it kind of hit the deck, and there wasn't like this great big gasp. And the commentators didn't really sell it. I thought, okay, maybe the commentators are just calling this for what it is. And then, that you know, and, and Bischoff comes out and, and starts, you know, making out like it's this, this big accident. And again, that's probably the first signal, you know, turn the cameras to get away, etc. And then they start to put the mannequin in the ring, and then Shivani goes, oh, wait a minute. But it's like, oh, hang on, Terry, like, if, if, if you've just worked out the ruse, why were you so calm beforehand? And I know I'm, I'm perhaps looking at something that shouldn't be a, a, a big point. But, yeah, I, I guess it's... It, it, it's the segment that got, you know, got, well, kind of got me talking, if nothing else. I guess there's that. Um, but, yeah, I, I just don't think it was, you know, I, I don't think it was brilliantly executed. I don't think it was a great idea. I don't think it created the kind of heat that they wanted it to. And I don't know that implying to an arena full of fans that one of your stars has just dropped from the roof is a great concept. I don't know that's a, you know... To, to me, it's it, you know, if you're going to do something like that, it needs to be able to produce more heat, and this didn't. Um, but but there we are. Um, and one more thing on, on, on this show, perhaps um, perhaps a bit light more more lighthearted. Um, during the match stream, I think it was Psychosis and Dimalenko, uh, refereed by Mark Curtis. A, a fan had uh, promised his wife, I think it was their anniversary or something like that. He said, "Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in the ring and get on national TV." So they return to the ring. Fan kind of shoots across um, the the bit of the uh, ringside area opposite the hard camera, kind of goes to slide in the ring, and as he comes to get up, Mark Curtis and you know, you know referees are you know trying to stop these these guys and whatnot. Mark Curtis just runs over, nails the guy with a knee lift, and then as he starts falling, just catches him in a reverse face lock, and then just like rides him wrestling like you know amateur wrestling style while these security guys come out. I'm not even sure it's worth discussing. I just thought it was a a really good moment. Eric, anything on that at all before we hit the pay per view? It was a perfectly executed knee strike followed by a textbook face lock with a with a with a spider wrap, and he held a guy that was looked to be about three times his size for a good five seconds before security came in. Mark Curtis versus Ming. Book it. Jeff, anything else? No. Right, fair enough. I, I, I would think it wouldn't think any less of you. Um, <laughs> let's move on to the pay-per-view. Eric, kick us off with the results. Sure, let me bring him up here. Uh, Eddie Guerrero defeated Chris Jericho to capture the Cruiserweight Championship. Uh, the Steiner brothers defeated Harlem Heat. Alex Wright retained the television championship over the Ultimo Dragon. Jeff Jarrett defeated Dean Malenko. Wrath and Mortis defeated the Faces of Fear. Uh, the Giant over Scott Norton. Uh, Lex Luger and DDP defeated Scott Hall and Randy Savage, sort of. And uh, in the War Games main event, the NWO, which was Buff Bagwell, Kevin Nash, Six, and Conan, defeated the Four Horsemen, Chris Benoit, Steve McMichael, Ric Flair, and Kurt Hennig. Just about. Jeff, what do you think of this show? 
Um, typical WCW pay-per-view, solid undercard uh, that progressively got sillier and sillier as it went into the main event. And uh, overall, there was some good, some bad, and some ugly. All right. Uh, no, nothing to disagree with what Jeff just said. This this match uh, or this this show had uh, three or four matches uh, in the first hour, hour and a half. That had some very good, some of the best wrestling you'll see in North America. Um, some really solid back and forth action between young guys, and then the big guys come out, the big dogs come out, and the last two two and a half matches uh, were, were definitely not up to the in ring caliber, and probably not even up to the storyline caliber uh, of the undercard. So typical WCW. As Jeff said, can't put it any better, good, bad, and ugly. Interesting. I, I, I thought this was one of WCW's better pay-per-view efforts of the year. Um, you know, not not to necessarily disagree with anything either you have said. Perhaps I just perceived the the matches down the stretch to have just about enough going for on Sakara for their, you know, perhaps perhaps perceived lack of uh, work rate. But uh, we'll, we'll see as we go along. We open up full brawl with Eddie Guerrero. Versus Chris Jericho for the WCW Cruiserweight title. Some heat oh, for Guerrero. Jericho has something to feed off at least. Guerrero flees and covers his ears. Jericho flattens Guerrero with a shoulder tackle. Guerrero hits a pair of arm drags as he takes it to the mat. Guerrero attempts to fight out of an arm bar, but Jericho keeps it in. They're saying Jericho is being more methodical, which is technically true. He puts in a lovely whipping magic style cradle as the action stays on the mat. You need to listen very hard, but there were definitely some boring chants there. They get to their feet. Jericho launches Guerrero neck first onto the top rope, then hits a lion salt and back to the arm. Jericho keeps the arm lock in, but Guerrero gets to his feet and drops to the floor. Guerrero puts in a kind of bow and arrow chin lock, I think that makes sense, with the knees driven into the back. They unlock that, Guerrero locks in a surfboard, then goes back to the chin lock. Guerrero hits a slingshot diving headbutt, then works a gory special back submission. uh, Jericho slides out and puts in the gory special himself. Guerrero rotates out of it, but Jericho slams into the mat. Jericho hits a series of corner clotheslines that runs out of legs. Guerrero climbs to the top, but Jericho crotches him. They got on the apron, Jericho sets for a powerbomb but ends up dropping Guerrero onto the top rope and they both spill to the floor. Jericho hits a lovely released German suplex, a two as Guerrero gets his foot on the ropes. Eddie slips out of a powerbomb and hits a one-arm slam. A pass on by Jericho for a two, he flings Guerrero across the ring then downs him with a spin wheel kick. Jericho hits a pair of powerbombs and a superplex from the top, but Guerrero counters it. He hits a frog splash, he counters it kind of you know, on the way down. Guerrero hits a frog splash from the top and wins the cruiserweight title. Eric? This match started very, very slow, and you mentioned the boring chance. I picked those up too, and I thought we were going to get another kind of paint-by-numbers boring Jericho match. But the last five to seven minutes of this match were, were rapid fire, lots of good combination spots, and, and really different moves than we've seen from Eddie and Jericho. Uh, Eddie is is fantastic. Uh, he looks great. His moves are stiff. He's crisp in the ring. It looks like he can pretty much work with anybody uh, because he's been up and down the card in the last uh, couple of months. Uh, the announcers, uh, they, they don't often put over characters as they should, but they put over Eddie here hard by selling uh, a change of demeanor, change of uh, his facial expressions, a change of his wrestling style. Really seems like they're going to put all the guns behind Eddie. Um, he had the crowd in the, in the palm of his hand and, and even got Jericho over uh, midway after Jericho was getting uh, booed pretty heavily or at least getting the boring chance. So this ended up being a very good match, especially for going nearly 20 minutes. 
Jeff? Yeah, I thought it was a, a really great opener uh, with some really awesome athletic uh, physical spots. Uh, Jericho really feels like an indie baby face Shawn Michaels. Like, there's just something quite bland about the character that he's working with right now. Uh, and Guerrero... He's really streamlined his physique, as mentioned. Uh, he, he was awesome in this match. Uh, I thought it was a, a great mercy on the audience that Zabisco wasn't calling the match because he's just such a net negative, especially to the cruiserweight bouts. Uh, that I, it was a visible something I noticed uh, when watching this bout. Uh, yeah, it started off slow. I thought they started to take these hellacious bumps to get the crowd back into it. Um, and there were some really exciting high spots leading to an excellent finish. I thought it was overall the best match of the night. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. I mean, the, I, I might put the dragon match in contention with that, but but yes. Uh, otherwise, this was a very good match, uh, Eric. I come and agree with you. I was, you know, four or five minutes in, they started really slow. Like about eighty percent of the first six minutes seems to be on the deck, and you're just thinking, ooh, this is a bit of a risk. Like you know, this is the this is the kind of match you kind of have fourth or fifth on the show where you're kind of going to calm a crowd down a bit and then build them back up. Um, but they kind of went with it long enough, uh, and it led to a match that was long enough where it kind of made sense. And they, they left everything locked in for so long that it, you know it felt like things were happening for a reason. Uh, we still got the problem with Jericho where he's kind of just so you know, vanilla as a babyface that you know people don't really care about him. And Guerrero's uh, Guerrero's in that awkward position as a heel where he is a heel, but he's not massively over as a heel and he's also one of the best wrestlers on the roster which is going to lead itself to him getting cheers they never quite got that far um, but I was very impressed with both guys you know they both worked really hard and the final third of the match they they put together a few really interesting and intricate little one-twos and they nailed almost all of it um, you know so I've kind of you know a bit of a broken record on WCW's undercard titles you know Guerrero winning the Cruiserweight title you know it, it says a lot that I've only just mentioned it, and we've gone through your, both of your opinions. You know, it's a it's a title change, but you know, who cares? You know, really, Jericho will probably be challenging for the US title in a couple of weeks. That's just kind of how it works. Um, but yeah, a, a really good opening match. You know, uh, in a you, know, you go back the last eighteen months, there's been a number of them in WCW. Um, Jericho needs a bit more, though. It's going to take a long time for him to get over. If like this, you know, Jeff, you talk about his character. I think you're being generous to the idea that he's even got one, um, in that he just seems to be the babyface against whoever the heel is. Um, and he comes out, and he says, "Come on, a lot," and he's got the long hair. Like you know, needs a bit of work. Um, don't put him in a feud with Dimalenko. Would be uh, match should be good. I suppose there's nothing else. Anyway, we got next the Harlem Heat, Booker T, and Stevie Ray with Jacqueline versus the Steiner brothers with Rick, Rick and Scott with Ted DiBiase. We're in ring number two. Ray starts unloading on Scott in the corner. Scott quickly recovers but crashes hard off the big shots or big boot shot. Scott hits a belly to belly. Booker tags in and hits the suplex. He comes off of the top but Scott catches him and hits the belly to belly, followed by a gorilla press slam. The Steiners hit their pose mid-ring to a big amount of barking from the fans. Rick tags in and the Steiners get going with a series of tags. Zabisco says that there may have, that may have been a tip from DBRC, i.e. tag in a tag match. That's what DBRC gets his money for, I suppose. Booker T hits a big sidekick. Steve Ray pulls the rope down and Scott tumbles to the floor. Scott gets strangled with an electrical cable. Rick rallies, but Nick Patrick sends him back. Booker T hits a corkscrew forearm for a two. He goes for a spin wheel kick, but Scott catches him and throws him down, looking for a hot tag. 
Rick hits a bulldog from the second rope. The, the Heat hoist him up and hit their Heat Seeker drop kick from the top, and Rick barely kicks out. The Steiners hit a clothesline German suplex combination and win the match. Apparently, that's the Steiners, the number one contenders again. Uh, Jeff, I don't know how many times you watched WCW pay for years this year, but I feel like we've seen this this match a lot. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Uh, I'm a I'm a big fan of both teams, and I I I think maybe. While the Jericho Guerrero match was technically the best match on the show for me, this was my favorite match. Uh, I just thought there's something about Steiner matches that feel a bit sloppy and feel definitely reckless the way they just suplex guys on their necks and heads. But that comes across as unpredictable and uncooperative, and then it makes the match feel so much different. So, I mean, I really, I really love when these guys get together because there's just a lot of cool suplexes, a lot of stiff looking stuff. Uh, when Harlem Heat hit that missile dropkick out of the Doomsday and just Rick Steiner just like, folded onto his neck, that was just, again, I just, just a hellacious bump. Um, I enjoyed, I really enjoyed this match. It was a hoss fight. Scott looks a lot more swole than Rick now, which is really uh, an odd sight. Um, my, my, my two negatives on the match, which, again, are, are more just booking, but... When you look at the Steiners, they're so over and they're so believable. The fans love their offense. Their gimmick is so legit, yet they're just on the second match of the car challenging for the tag titles, whereas they should be, you know, the top baby faces helping out the top WCW guys against the NWO, similar to how the roadies were used when they were helping Dusty against the horsemen a decade earlier, but they're not. They're just two other guys on the card, sometimes feuding with the outsiders, sometimes the faces appear, and that's frustrating because I think you can get so much more out of them. Also... Jacqueline is a massive step down as a valet from Sherry, um, since she's so much of an unpredictable, fiery presence who totally understood the nuance to her role, and that is a dynamic loss on Harlem Heat now. Uh, but any match that has that many stiff strikes and Steiner lines and suplexes is going to get, you know, five stars by me. Uh, Jeff, you said that they were challenging for the tag titles. I think that's one of my problems. They weren't. Um, you know, we, we spent about three months, like, slowly but surely, the Steiners crawling their way to a tag title shot. They got one at uh, Road Wild, won the match, didn't win the titles, of course they didn't. Um, and now they're back to having, you know, tag matches just for the sake of getting another shot. I mean, Jeff, I've I, I asked this question to other people before. Are the outsiders holding up the tag team division in WCW? Because I think they are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you have two guys who are main eventers as an act, but they have the secondary belt in the tag belt, uh, they're not going to want to do a job to, you know, a perceived lower level, you know, act on the card such as a tag team. But in the same sentence, they're they're holding, the, they're giving the titles more relevancy by putting it in a main event. But it's, I mean, it's it's the NWO, it's Hall and Nash. They've got the stroke; they can do whatever they want. Um, I just. I just see money in the Steiners as, as just badass wrecking balls, and I don't think they're being used to the full potential. Yeah, and it, it's not even, you know, WCW's tag division, with or without Hall and Nash, is really deep. It's not like, ah, oh, shit, we don't have a tag team, let's just put the tag titles on Hall and Nash so it kind of looks credible. You could remove them from the equation completely, and you, you've still got Steiners, Harlem Heat, you've got Meng and Barbarian, you've got Wrath and Mortis, you've got, well, the Nasty Boys, wherever they are, you've got the Public Enemy, there's a few others, there's High Voltage, there's, you know, so not all of those tag teams are great, but you've got a hell of a division there, there's enough depth somewhere or another. Uh, you could put some of the Mexicans together, you've got, you know, there's at least one or two other NWO tag teams you could use. There's a hell of a division, and, and yeah, the, the, the Steiners in this kind of, you know, early babyface 
tag spot, which is great. Eric, what do you think of well, the match and, and any of that discussion? Well, the match, the, the match was always going to be good. Uh, these are probably, even though there's a, a very deep tag division in WCW, these are probably the two best teams. And so you put the two best teams together in what's already a good division, and, and you're going to get a good match. Uh, this wasn't a match we, we've never seen before, obviously. Um, at this point, the Steiners, while their matches are good, are kind of always uh, the same or at least similar enough. And, and with Scott getting so big, his, his moveset is limited, so what the Steiners can do in the ring is, is only going to uh, be more limited due to that. But this was a fine match. I completely agree with Parker that Jackie's a massive step down. Um, she, she just has no ability to speak or, or, or be a, a commanding presence. Um, she should be a silent ass kicker, not the mouthpiece, uh, for two guys who can actually both cut a pretty compelling promo. Um, I don't have anything to add other than it just, booking-wise, you point out it doesn't make sense that the Steiners aren't already the number one contenders. It also doesn't make sense that, like Jeff said, why the Steiners aren't participating in this more general WCW versus NWO feud. We've seen this month Hall and Nash split up, go up and down the car, different feuds, different partners. If the Steiners are going to be feuding with Hall and Nash, logic would dictate that the Steiners would have that same freedom to be the, the essentially the WCW equivalent to Hall and Nash. Now, I know they're not because Hall and Nash were independently uh, stars before they, they teamed up, but if you're going to try to say that WCW's answer to Hall and Nash, or at least the answer to the tag division, is the Steiners, give the Steiners that push and that freedom to move up and down, especially Scott, uh, who uh, looks like a million bucks, more limited in the ring, but you know he can work a main event style uh, with just about anybody. That's my biggest complaint here is the Steiners are kind of artificially, and for no good reason, uh, shackled to the tag division where they shouldn't be. They should be being used more freely as Hall and Nash are. Yeah, um, it's you know if you're not going to use the Steiners properly, don't use them at all. I suppose that doesn't really make sense. But it, yeah, um, they they deserve more than to be in the second match spot. And as I say, the I, the reason why I point out the fact we've seen this match before, it's not to say I don't want to see it again, but I kind of like I want to see if it means something. It wasn't formally announced as the number one contenders match. I mean, you know, if, if, if Kevin Nash is going to be out for two or three months, then, you know, they may just hold it up, although they did defend the, the tag titles under Freebird rule last week, and I know they've been doing it as, as Hall and Six, I think, at house shows since. Um, so, you know, it's not like they, they can't they can't challenge for the, the, the titles in the next month or two. So, you know, that's fine. Um, but, yeah, for me, like... I don't know that you take the tag titles off a of Hall and Nash. Hall and Nash lose anything at all. And you then create the... St- you, I don't say say you elevate the Steiners, but you then give the Steiner matches a lot more meaning. Um, and then you have the Steiners against Harlem Heat, and then I pay attention. Right now, it's just those guys who are more than capable of a good match, and this was that. Um, but kind of going through the motions. And I, I think both, both teams deserve more than that. Uh, but there we are. Moving on next to the Ultimate Dragon versus Alex Wright for the WCW television title. Wright controls things early with a side headlock takeover. Dragon counters with one of his own, and Wright returns to a headlock. Dragon stops running off of the ropes and takes advantage of Wright looking for a leapfrog. He follows that with a side kick to the floor. Wright hits a tombstone flapjack with a chin lock as the fans rally behind Dragon. I wonder if this match is a bit too similar to the opener. Dragon hits a crossbody, then a pair of kicks to the back to the seated Wright. Wright goes to the mat with a chin lock and puts his foot on the ropes for leverage. Dragon catches Wright dancing and almost picks it up. 
He chucks right off of the top, but Wright cuts him off by getting a boot up as Dragon lands. Wright comes off of the top and Dragon gets a foot up. Dragon hits an acai moonsault to the floor. Wright cuts Dragon off, going to the top and drop kicks him to the floor. Dragon hits a sunset flip of a powerbomb off of the top. Wright hits hard, but is able to kick out. Dragon hits a moonsault, another two. He comes off of the top and Wright counters with a drop kick. Dragon puts Wright on the top rope, hits a Frankenstein, and then puts in a Dragon Sleeper. Wright quickly gets the ropes. Another Dragon Sleeper, counterweight drawbreaker from Wright, and then hits a German suplex for the win. Eric? Uh, this match started uh, really crisp. It did start a little bit similar to the opener with, with some slow spots, some mat wrestling, chain wrestling. Uh, but it, it picked up quicker, and, and especially the first 10 minutes of this match were really crisp. Um, Dragon is, is amazing. I mean, he's one of the best, if not the best, in-ring performer right now, uh, especially in this weight class. I think he's just head and shoulders above everybody else, except for maybe Eddie, and I'd like to see those guys get together. But, you know, Dragon's credentials are, are largely unparalleled. And Alex Wright is clearly improving. I mean, he's got a character he's latched on to. It's a heat-seeking character. He's generally disliked everywhere he goes, and that's kind of translated into the ring where he's working with more confidence and, and able to keep up with guys who are better, like uh, like an Ultimo Dragon, and we'll see later uh, this month. We probably won't cover it, but against Regal, too. They had a really good match on Nitro. Um, the, the complaint I have for this match, and it was very good, um, WCW standards have gone up, so we can nitpick these things now where we couldn't in 1994, 1995. But at times, this was a move, 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 without transition style match. And I think just looking at it, comparing the two matches for me subjectively, there was a little bit more fluidity and a little more continuity between Eddie and Jericho than there were between Dragon and, and Wright. Uh, the, nitpicking, though, this was a very good match. Um, I, I was surprised that Alex Wright went over and, and went over clean. He went over clean again. Um, it seemed like they were putting a lot of momentum behind Alex Wright, that was kind of squashed later in the month when he lost at Disco. But at least here he looked good and it looked like they were hitching their wagons to him and the finish made sense even if it was surprising. Jeff? Okay, so the positive, I'll get out of the way. Uh, it was a very competent pro wrestling match um, that got much more exciting as it accelerated toward the finish. Uh, but the fans didn't really seem too hot for it as a whole until uh, you know they started to pick up. And again, there were a, a hell of a lot of rest holds and shin locks and headlocks from Alex Wright. On paper, I didn't think this was the appropriate showcase for somebody who has the awesome uh, style that Ultimo Dragon has, uh, especially if you're going to take him out of the cruiserweight division and put him in the TV title you know, chase against somebody like Alex Wright. It doesn't really seem like it's it's going to highlight what you get out of the best kind of Ultimo Dragon match. I'm not super high on Alex Wright. I think he doesn't exploit uh, strongly enough that heel persona of the obnoxious pretty boy dancer. And in particular, I thought his expressions and his selling seems totally lifeless for what he could get out of that character. I think of guys like Honky Tonk or, or even even Regal and how they, they can just facially put across their disdain and, and that cockiness that really does get that extra level of heat, and Wright doesn't have that. It was a good match. Um, Ultimo Dragon, is he a cruiserweight? Is he a TV champion? Is he, you know, w- what division is he in? Alex Wright, they're putting over as he's six foot four. It was just a weird stylistic on paper matchup for me. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't not a fan of it. It was competent, but uh, it just didn't blow my skirt up. Didn't blow my skirt up? Is that a... Is that an expression in Canada? Is, is I mean, that... I, I read a lot of books, Bob. Right, okay. 
I'll, I'll ask no more. Um, yeah, it's easy to forget. Alex Wright's only 22. Um, easy to forget that when he, he, he well, when we first started kind of discussing him, when his, his his first push kind of started in you know '94, he was what 19, I think. Um, uh, and and you know that's not to defend or explain away his shortcomings, but it is to kind of say you know the guy is improving on a national stage and he's learning on a national stage. Um, and yeah, some of that stuff when you compare him to someone like Regal that's been going for as long as he has and other guys like that, he has got to learn. And you do hope that you know there are there, there are guys more senior in WCW that will kind of work with him on that. Um, I thought this was really good. Um, you know, maybe there was, maybe the rest holes were too long. You know, that that kind of second chin lock wasn't there for a while. Um, and maybe it's not the the greatest pairing from a heat standpoint. And you know, I, I think that you know, I kind of said this a few times now. I, I don't think you can just put a put a guy out there in a mask and hope he's going to get over as a baby face. I don't think WCW worked that out. And it's interesting to see that later on Nitro this month, they seem to be trying the idea that they're going to have this kind of documentary series or this series of video packages hosted by Mike Tanay kind of looking at the the history and the heritage of, of, of Mexican wrestlers and their masks, perhaps as a way of just trying to get over what they're about. Um, but Dragon is... I think the best wrestler in North America right now, um, you know, and Wright is a guy that has improved a lot. I mean, okay, it helps to a point when you're in the ring with someone like Dragon, you are going to look good, but you do have to be good as well. Um, and Wright's getting there quickly. Was it a ton of heat on this match? Um, you know, and again, as I kind of said about the Cruiserweight title, you know, it, it, it's just another belt. The fact they've got kind of three of them floating around doesn't really help anyone. Um, particularly as, you know, you took, Jeff, you talk about divisions, like both of these guys belong in the cruiserweight division. They belong in a TV title division if that exists. And, you know, technically, if it's just for people who are American, they don't belong in the United States title division, but I'm sure they, that they can and will. Um, you know, so, so the, the title thing is there. But from an in-ring st- quality standpoint, this was excellent. Another great showing for Dragon. He just seems to have one after another after another this year. Um, I, I, and I do like the right character. I, I, I think it's it's a bit basic. It's not particularly, you know, complex in terms of, you know, he comes out, he talks German, he is German, he dances a bit, he's good-looking and he flaunts it, you know, that kind of thing. He's a little bit arrogant. It's not the most nuanced of characters ever, but we're in an industry where a, a lack of nuances is acceptable and fine. Um, and they, uh, they just about get away with it. We cut to an Oakland potline plug. Bagwell and other members of the NWO walk across the shop. We later find, I say later find out, about 15 seconds later, they walk into the, they walk across the shop where the NWO just went and they open up the door and Kurt Henning, apparently at least, has been attacked. More on that later. Jack Jarrett with Deborah versus Dean Malenko is next. Jarrett sends Deborah to the back. Another match that's slow to start, the pair exchange arm holds. A bit more intensity from both men as Jarrett drops an elbow and Malenko hits a big drop kick. Another side headlock. Malenko drives Jarrett's head on the turnbuckle. Jarrett goes for a sleeve and Malenko fights to the ropes. Malenko hits a loose superplex from the top. Not much time, not much setup time on that one. Malenko goes for a drop kick, but Jarrett stops in the ropes. Jarrett collects Malenko's legs, but Malenko rolls it through. Malenko shakes through a Texas club leap, but Jarrett makes it to the ropes. Deborah comes back out, and Malenko, uh, Malenko and Jarrett tumble to the floor. 
Malenko drapes Jarrett's legs over the guardrail, then kicks it. Jarrett drops to the floor, then wraps Malenko around the ring post. Jarrett comes off of the top but gets caught with a boot. Malenko nearly takes it with a couple of near falls. Jarrett wants a double arm DDT and we exchange near pinfalls. Jarrett locks in the figure four. Malenko submits and Jarrett wins cleanly. Jeff. Um, okay, so I'll get the positive out of the way again. Uh, the match itself was quite fine. Um, although I thought it, I thought this one lacked creativity considering both are really good workers. And for me, I found it frustrating that here you have two rings and a guy who's the so-called man of a thousand holds, yet didn't seem to utilize that second ring for any real innovative uh, maneuvers. Um, for me, with WCW, their, their high points are when they do that kind of shoot reality-based, you know, the outsiders are invading and all of the, the NWO type cool bad guy type stuff. And totally Jeff Jarrett is like 180 degrees from the NWO cool level of, of, of storyline. The gimmick and his ring gear and everything just comes across as so tacky and feels like it's from another era. And I've been saying this since he was in WWF. He just screams mid Carter with the way he carries himself at, with that character and the Fargo strut and all that. Um, Zabisco was god awful on commentary during this match just kept trying to get himself over and put over how smart he was opposed to either guy in the match. Um, another person I'm not really a huge fan of is, you know, Malenko because his, he has the personality of a doorknob. And uh, it felt like the fans were more antagonistic towards Jarrett than they were, you know, rooting, had having any rooting interest in Malenko. And I, I'm not really sure if he's a babyface or a heel or a tweener or what, but, uh, you know, he can be the best wrestler, you know, on the planet. But if he just comes across, he's a bigger mannequin than Benoit, I mean, ever could be. Benoit pretending to be a mannequin would be less of a mannequin than Dean Malenko is. Um, you know, the match was the match. I just think the presentation of Jared is too corny and hokey. And, and Malenko is just totally directionless. But the match itself was good. Not, not that I necessarily disagree, but it wouldn't be a WCW show with Jeff on it if he didn't just take at least 30 seconds out to tell us how bad B. Malenko's character is. Uh, yeah, Eric. Wow, he, well, he has a character. In the, uh, in the same way we said earlier, in the same way we were talking about Jericho earlier. So oh, no, Chris Jericho has blonde hair. Dean Malenko doesn't even have that going for him. Well, that's true. That's true. Yeah, he has got the receding hairline look going on. That That's also working against him. All right, what do you think? Uh, this was a weird match, in my opinion. Uh, Malenko seemed to wrestle a, a different style. Uh, he wrestled a more uh, a slower, uh, more, uh, dare I say, even hardcore style. Not hardcore, but reckless style. There, a lot of this match, like a lot of Jarrett matches, took place on the outside. They did a lot of stuff to stall. That's kind of Jarrett's gimmick. Maybe since he's been wrestling Mongo since the beginning of time, it feels like he's had to build in these mechanisms to drag out three minutes of skill into a ten-minute match. But they didn't need to do that here. Jericho's perfectly, uh, Jarrett's perfectly capable of uh, of wrestling a, a, another competitor uh, who's, who's who's a good wrestler. We've seen it with Shawn Michaels. We've seen it with uh, Razor Ramon, Scott Hall. Um, we've seen it at other times. Jarrett can is a very good, uh, well, not very good, but he's a good to, to very good in-ring performer. Uh, they didn't exploit really any of that here. This was a good match, and thinking back over it, it was 15 minutes long, and I don't really remember any of the spots except for really the end, which was baffling. They just submit this guy who's supposed to be this ice-cold badass in the middle of the ring with a figure-four leg lock who nobody submits to anymore, ever. Um, I think Flair has won a couple of matches with it in the last couple of years, and we always point out how ridiculous it is because it's a transitional hold. It hasn't been protected and here we've got Jeff Jarrett, who nobody buys as a credible uh, professional wrestler in the most kayfabe sense, 
submitting a guy who's supposed to be this badass technical wizard with a move that nobody believes is credible in a match that went too long. So that being said, something about this match was good, and there was good good energy and good momentum. It wasn't bad, but it was just very weird, and the ending was weird, and it didn't really play to either guy's strength. So I think more to their credit, they got a good match despite all those flaws. Yeah, um, this I think was probably the low point of the show. Um, I, I would say, and you know, maybe it's just the, the stuff before this was, you know, good wrestlers, bland characters having good matches, and the stuff after this was okay matches with good characters, and this kind of was neither. Um, and you know, that's that's been a bit harsh on Malenko, who's one of the best they've got. But as uh, uh, as Jeff, you know. Not not so uh, not sh- without much camouflage points out. Malenko isn't the isn't the most character driven wrestler in the world, and Jarrett's a bit of a you know a bit of a dust cloud if you like, or he feels like it. Um, you put them together in a few that no one really cares about. I, I you know Jarrett I think is a heel, but sometimes seems to be a face. Malenko I think is a face, but sometimes seems to be a heel. Not that it ever really matters. Um, you know, Jarrett only seems to have heat when he's wrestling Mongo, because um, there's the whole thing with, well, him with his, his ex-wife. Um, I think they're ex-wife now, I think they're split. Um, and yeah, it, the, the match was fine, but yeah, Eric, when you said the match was 15 minutes, I look at my notes and I've got about uh, notes for a match length that was about five or six minutes, or it feels like it. Um, just not a lot happened, not a lot of heat, not a lot of investment, and that goes for the crowd and for me too. Um, and yeah, I don't care about either of these guys, and that's probably the biggest problem of all. We'll move on next to Wrath and Mortis with James Vandenberg versus the faces of Viet Meng and Barbarian. Mortis starts out hard with a series of kicks and strikes to Barbarian. Barbarian turns the tables with a series of body shots. It's Meng against Wrath. Wrath gets a boot up, then it's a chop which pisses off Meng. Meng flips Mortis over, Barbarian catches him and smashes him with a powerbomb. Meng is firing in some hard chops, Vandenberg crotches Barbarian off of the top, Mortis goes to the top and Barbarian knocks him off. For the fourth time tonight, a guy comes off of the top and lands in a big boot. Wrath hits a big scissor kick and they hit a double team net breaker powerbomb, Meng breaks up the pin. Barbarian falls by the ring post Mortis cracks the ring steps off his head Well, in theory anyway Mortis goes for a superplex on Barbarian Wrath puts Mortis on his shoulders For a super superplex Big pot for that That apparently hurt Mortis as much as it hurt Barbarian Meng tags in and cleans house A massive chop and a sidekick on Mortis And a big power slam on Wrath Meng hits a splash from the top for a two He gets a tongue and death grip on both Vandenberg and Mortis Wrath cuts him off with a big slam for the three, Eric. This, in hindsight, this was the match that should have uh, tipped us off that the, the the first WCW show was over and the WCW NWO show was beginning because, boy, there was some ropey officiating in this match. That finish, uh, Barbarian should have been disqualified. Then Vandenberg interfered, no disqualification, and then Ming wins uh, in a big old cluster of a mess, or uh, Ming gets pinned in a big old cluster of a mess. Uh, Mark Curtis needs to get his lenses adjusted. But anyway, um, this was a, a pretty pretty sloppy but a good big man match. It was too long. I would have shaved three or four minutes off of this match. I don't know where you would have put it, maybe in the main event. But um, I think this when you got Barb and Ming, who are, who are both still credible but, but getting older, and then 
Wrath, uh, who's kind of a slow-plotting big man. The only guy in this match with any real technical ability to carry a 10-plus-minute match is, is Mortis, and, and he did that. He was the star of this match, in my opinion. Really stood out, uh, and he continues to stand out later in the month uh, when they go against Holland Nash. He's just very, very good, very talented. I think what I get out of this match is I really hope Mortis can either be repackaged in his current character or repackaged altogether or something more credible and, and given somewhat of a push because I'd really like to see him against some of these guys that we've talked about, like Eddie, like Alex Wright. And he's a pretty big guy, too, so he could work up the card, too, maybe against Hall and against DDP. Um, really talented dude. Otherwise, this match was just kind of a sloppy transitional uh, tag match. Jeff? You know, I, I thought it was better than it probably had any right to be, uh, but realistically, in between the really cool uh, power high spots, it was fairly banal and, and clunky. Uh, my big takeaway was I'm a big James Vandenberg fan. I think he has a great presence. He reminds me of my favorite and, in my opinion, the greatest manager of all time, Gary Hart. Uh, and I'd actually love to see him. When I was watching Malenko, I'm like, Malenko's so boring. Malenko's so boring. And, and he needs something. He needs a mouthpiece. I think Vandenberg championing Malenko and pr- bringing that malevolence, that sinister kind of uh, evil that he kind of carries would, would add something to Malenko's act. That's what Malenko needs. So I don't just hate Malenko across the board, just to, to clarify. I just hate the fact that, that you know, for the man of a thousand moves, one of the moves is in a smile. Which you, is you, you're uh, just bringing him up in non-Malenko matches now as well. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just, but I, I, I dig Vandenberg. I think he's awesome. Uh, I also love Ming and Barb. Uh, they're not the greatest technical wrestlers, but no one's ever confused them for that. They're believable. They're tough. They had a Haas fight. Ming unleashed a chop in this match that hurt me watching it. Oh, Again, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you said that because I forgot to bring that up. That was great. I mean, I, I think that if I did book a territory, it would just be Haas fights and chicken shit heels and Bret Hart as the world champion. But that's that would be the greatest promotion ever. Um, again, I'm not sure who the babyface and heels were in this match. Uh, it was creative, fun finish, and it made it was a total cluster. But it made Nang look really strong because he was ripping two guys' throats out, and it took a third guy to urinate him. Um, you know, Wrath is obviously the weak link. He looks just like as clunky and clumsy as always, but Mortis has upside and Ming and Barb are just, they're the two guys I want to back me in a bar fight. And those are the guys you want on your roster. And Mark Curtis. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I like this. Um, Not to say that you guys didn't, um, but I I, I was, yeah, when we talk about where our opinions on this show might diverge, this might be one of the matches. Um, You know, like, we talk about Malenko not having... I'm doing it now. I'm bringing up Malenko in a match that he doesn't belong in. We talk about Malenko not having a character. I kind of feel like these guys are almost the opposite problem. Like, I feel like Mortis could be really, really good. And yet he's kind of... He's lumbered with this really shit gimmick. And you've got Meng and Barbarian that aren't necessarily lumbered with bad gimmicks, but they're kind of pigeonholed and they're kind of typecast with these kind of lower card gimmicks you know, Meng, the, you know, the Samoan that doesn't really do a lot, you know he's, he stand there all menacingly and it's like there's there's only a, there's only really a ceiling that you're ever going to have with that kind of character um, I, I thought the action at times in this match was, was really good, you've got, you know, Jeff talks you know, Jeff talks about four really big guys just kind of going at it and doing really impressive shit. I talk about the depth of WCW's tag division. You've got these two teams, and I think Rath and Mortis are both quite good as well. Um, you know, if one good, you know, it seems like they've given up on Glacier now, but if one good thing's come out of that division, it might be these two guys as a pairing. You know, whether it's, whether it's time to drop the whole Mortal Kombat thing and take them in another direction is another question. 
these two teams that are both really good, and it helps that I'm a bit like Jeff, I kind of enjoy the style more than most. Um, you know, real hard-hitting, real convincing style. Um, you know, and the fact when, when stuff doesn't come off, when you're wrestling like this, it kind of adds to a match rather than sometimes if you're, if you're trying to wrestle a real technical style of match and you fuck a couple of things up, it kind of takes away from it. When you've got guys that this big, where something doesn't quite look right, that kind of just adds to it. It kind of adds to this unpredictability and this thought these guys are just that wild that things won't always go to plan. Um, yeah, again, a match that doesn't matter. Um, yeah, we talk about WCW's lack of tag team division or lack of tag team opportunities while you know Nash and, and Hall are kind of just holding the belts. Um, yeah, this could be you know, these two teams. I'd like to see in that mix as well. Um, you know, and I think you know we, we, there's a match on Nitro. I've got a feeling that you know Mega Barbarian won too. But yes, my basic point is just get the tag titles off of National Hall and then we can do things with these teams that can have fun matches like this. Gene, it is truly going to be an honor to give the NWO a taste of reality. Conan, we all know you're the biggest wannabe happening. Six, but a number. Bagwell, well, we all know what the buff is about. And Nash, Nash... Well, you've been so many different characters, we're not quite sure what you're about. But after tonight, you're going to know what the horsemen are about. Steve McMichael, I've got to ask you, is it going to be the four horsemen tonight or not? Listen, boys, you're in a cage now. You can run, but you can't hide. You run around playing those little games all you want, brother. But listen up, you idiots. Do you understand what Armageddon is? The four horsemen are bringing down the apocalypse on you tonight. All right, Ric Flair, you've been here before. Many say the darkest time is just before dawn. That may be the case tonight here for War Games. Gino Glenn, is this? If I ever thought about quitting when my back was against the wall, I would not be here tonight. Henning is down. That's the price you pay for being a horseman. But somehow, I know if they can put a hitting together, he'll walk that aisle. Woo, and he'll stand tall. In the meantime, Nash, and I'm talking to you, big man, right next to me, five times all pro, and in his leisure time, where's a Super Bowl ring? Also next to me. They call him the Crippler, pound for pound. The best wrestler alive today. And as you so fondly want to talk about, in this tired old body, is more heart, more desire, more soul, and more reality than the NWO will ever know. Woo! And in Winston-Salem, whether it's three, four, two, one, we will bleed, we will sweat, and you will pay the price for that. Oakland is backstage with the rest of the horsemen. Benoit references the many faces of Kevin Nash and says a boot a lot. Flair brings a hell of a lot of fire. Next up, it's Scott Norton versus the Giant. The crowd are being to the Giant here. Norton starts with some rights. Giant responds by dumping him to the outside. Giant attempts to throw Norton into the ring post, but Norton slides off and hit Giant hits it instead. 
Maxi's Norton on the floor and Norton hits the guardrail again. Norton drops giant neck first on the top rope. Norton gains control, hits the belly to back and does his version of an undertaker by raising his arm from the ground. So I'll try it again. Norton gains control, hits the belly to back. Uh, giant does his version of an undertaker by raising his arm from the ground, then doing a kip up. Holy shit, even if you did need the assistance of the ropes. That looked really nice. Giant follows that with a big boot and then a drop kick. One, two, three with a choke slam, and it's all over. Jeff. You know, I've been saying this for a while. I think since we reviewed the 1996 Slamboree when Giant was a full-blown world champion heel, but there's a massive babyface potential to Giant, and it was evident in this match with the crowd reaction, especially with them all making the choke slam hand gesture. If he's packaged properly, he could be easily be a top babyface. Um, this match had a hot finish. I, the one knock I'd say would probably be the Giant for his size does maybe too many athletic bumps for a match against a guy like Scott Norton, who in the United States and North America isn't booked as a top guy. Um, so maybe he shouldn't drop kick on a match and give it away on such as something so less meaningful than say a Hulk Hogan match. But uh, overall it got giant across as a, as a badass, and I don't think it hurt Norton too badly. Uh, it was good for what it was. Jeff, I don't necessarily disagree, but was, was giant doing ungiant like things. The only thing that made this match memorable. But if the Giant can do it and you have a cruiserweight division, what's the point of having a cruiserweight division, right? Like, he's a seven-footer, he's this massive athlete, and we know he can do cool things, so he should probably use them sparingly when, you know, the most money and the most eyes are being spent and on that product, so that's big matches. Doing it in a match against Scott Norton on a card with Ultimo Dragon, Chris Jericho, Chris Benoit, Six and Eddie Guerrero, it's pointless. I mean, we know this guy's big. That's they're not paying to see him do a, a semi shitty drop kick. So it's cool that he can do a kip up, but it wasn't the best kick up kip up I've ever seen. It's just it's tremendous wear on a guy like that size his body, and I just don't see the upside because it's not like he's a tremendous athlete. He's just for his size a better athlete than Under the Giant was. Eric, oh man. Uh... I think Giant is one of the most, if not the most physical, physically impressive athletes in the world today. Uh, I think it's fair to say that he doesn't throw a good enough, as good a dropkick as Ultimo Dragon, but Ultimo Dragon is not seven something and three, four, five hundred pounds. He, you know, the the point of the Giant is that he is that big and can do those things, and, and there's nobody else in the world. Uh, at least on the, the level the Giant is in terms of exposure, that can do those things at that size. Um, the, the, on, the only other athletes that are as good and as big as the Giant are in, in the NBA. You don't see guys this big in professional wrestling doing these types of moves, and I think that's what makes the Giant unique and what makes him stand out and what makes him get over and stay over despite the questionable booking in the heel face, heel face, heel face, heel face uh, turns that Giant has had over the course of his short tenure in WCW. He is so over in front of this crowd. And, and if the Sting thing isn't successful or if they're looking to do something more longer term or if they want to build somebody to be the next Hogan, I think Parker's right that the Giant should be on WCW's radar as their long-term solution as the top, top, top guy. By all accounts, he's got personality. He's a good-looking dude. The crowd loves him. 
Um, but I think to say that him throwing these drop kicks and doing the kip ups um, isn't impressive be- because he's seven feet tall and 400 pounds misses the point of it's impressive because he's that size and he's over because he can do those things. I really hope that he stays in WCW and they allow him to continue to develop because I, 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 I worry that if he were to go somewhere else or if he were to go to Japan, he'd have to work a stiff style. If he were to go to the Fed, he'd have to work a big lumbering style. In WCW, where they don't really pay that much attention to detail, the Giant can do these things, get away with it, and get over. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that you know, had, had he not have done some of this stuff, this would have been an almost nothing match. And just right to point out the reactions he was getting. Um, you know, he came out and they kind of panned the crowd and everyone seemed to be into him. That's not something that was consistent throughout the show, either before or after. Um, and, you know, Norton's a, Norton's a bit of a weird act. Like, you know, they, they don't really push him. He, he, he's, he's probably more over in Japan than he is in America, despite his size and despite, to a point, his ability. Um, but Giants have uh, been a really good act for a while. They're just struggling to find a a compelling spot for him. He's kind of in that logjam with with kind of Dallas Page and Luger, these kind of baby faces that you know get paid about half a million dollars a year or just under. They're not in that. They're not in that pay bracket that Hall and Nash are. They're not in the pay bracket that Flair and Piper are. They're certainly not the pay bracket that Hulk Hogan is. Um, and they're kind of treated that way to a point as well, as in that you know they're they're over, but they're not priority one. They're not in priority two, three, four, or five. Um, but Giant consistently gets great reactions. We saw later in the month on Nitro when he just came out during a main event, the crowd just went nuts for it. Um, he's a very likable guy. You know, we, we, we've spoken about it before. He doesn't often get a chance to show it, but from a promo perspective, he's far better than I think he has any right to be and from an in-ring perspective he's probably far better than he has any right to be um, and that means they've got something there um, they just for whatever reason haven't really found the right spot for him they were talking about doing Giant and Kevin Nash um, as a few now where where that goes now Nash is hurt I don't know but that would be a, a great potential kind of number two WCW feud or number two feud on the on, on the shows Um I think what's going to be interesting, though, is that they're talking about, you know, in January when they launch this new show, they're talking about NWO Nitro and then this Thursday show as well, about how they might divide up the roster. Not necessarily to say they'll split it, but I believe they're they're looking at, at least at the top end of the roster, trying to stop guys being on both shows. And quite how they would do an NWO TV show, because God knows they've tried it before and they've never really found anything that makes any sense. But if the NWO guys are predominantly going to be on one show, Giant's the guy you could probably stick on the other show and let him, if not be the lead guy, be the, the 1A. Um, and yes, Giant doing a kip-up's a lot of fun. Giant doing a drop kick's a lot of fun. I agree with Jeff to a point, but Jeff Invader does a moonsault, right? You know, isn't... You know, like, that's not the most important part of his acts, admittedly. But, you know, isn't there something to be said for if you want to get over, do shit that the crowd, uh, do shit that people don't expect you to do? Yeah, Vader does moonsaults. And in the last five years, how much weight has Vader gained because he's been immobile because he's shot his knees out? Uh, the logic behind a giant doing a dropkick is impressive if it's in a big match. 
if it's in a throwaway match against a guy like Scott Norton, it's just another bump on a guy who's probably got less bumps than the usual worker because he's seven feet tall. It's And once the Giant throws a drop kick, like realistically, if Ultimo Dragon throws a drop kick and he gets a two count, and a seven foot, 400 whatever pound guy throws a drop kick, that should be his finish. He should obliterate a guy with that finish. Uh, it wasn't. It was just another move. So now you're kind of inoculating the fans to a giant throwing a really cool, albeit shitty-looking dropkick, and now they've seen it in a match against Scott Norton. So when he does go have that big money match with Hogan, what's he going to do, a Hurricane Rana or a Shooting Star Press? And when he does that and he puts the taxing you know, uh, weight on his knees on the landing, he's going to wind up like Vader in a couple years and put on a couple hundred pounds and stop being that great worker that Vader was. So that's my argument. That's where I stand. That was just a Demolenko reference short of a, a full house for Jeff there, I think. We'll move uh, on. I, I also didn't bury Shawn Michaels. So. Well, that's true. That's true. Yeah, that's a very good point. I forgot about that. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll wait for the next, next one for that one. Next up, it's Dying Dallas Page and Lex Luger versus Scott Hall and Randy Savage and Miss Elizabeth. Liz walks out with Savage and Larry Zabisco says, I thought that was Scott Hall. Hall wants Luger and that's how we'll start. Luger fights off Hall and Savage hits a double clothesline. Hall falls to the outside and Savage gets chucked on to him. Page tags him, it quickly falls to Hall. Page rallies with some drunk left hands and an atomic drop. Page hits a pile driver flapjack, but Savage cuts him off of the NWO get Page where they want him. After a couple of minutes, Page rallies out of the corner but gets stopped short of tagging in Luger. Hall kicks Luger between the two rings. Savage throws Page across into the other ring. The commentators are still talking like uh, like uh, over the top rope is a disqualification. Hall has Mark Curtis sat on the turnbuckle and bring number two, and then he just knocks him out. Liz has been getting involved a lot. Mickey J comes out and gets knocked out by Hall too. Larry Zabisco leaves his announcer's position and confronts Hall. Zabisco keeps the distraction on long enough as Luger slowly emerges from between the two rings. Zabisco gets in the ring and he pushes Hall towards Luger. Luger rolls him up. Zabisco slides in and makes the quick three count and the faces win. Jeff? Um... I think this might have been my semi-least favorite. Like, the main event was my least favorite match on the card. Um, but I think the Zabisco finish just left the sourest taste in my mouth. Um, couple that with the fact that Luger just seems like a complete void of charisma. Like, if Lex Luger walked off the face of the earth today, I don't think I'd notice. Um, I think Scott Hall is excellent as a complete performer. He's probably, when it comes to the complete, the total package to steal a phrase... He's got it all for what I, I'm looking for, um, you know, off-the-field problems aside. Although he did, in this match, do too many of those Terry Funk, Dick Murdoch oversell spots, which he, he's prone to do where he gets too goofy when selling punches. And again, at, just like his buddy Nash, they seem to entertain themselves more than anything. Um, I hated the part of this... The, the, the fart. The part of this match where the babyface announcers were just healing the heels all over on commentary. And it just became so grating because it's like... We get it. They're, uh, you know, an abomination to WCW, but it was just harping and harping on it. Um, likewise, of all the old-timers that they ever could have brought in to work a program with Scott Hall, if you gave me a million pages to write on, I don't think Larry Zbysko would even be on, you know, the last one. I, but I also wouldn't categorize him as a legend, considering he's only popular because he happened to be trained by Bruno San Martino. But that's beyond the point. And beyond a stupid finish, to be quite honest. Because, again, you have babyfaces who need help from a retired announcer to outsmart the heel. 
Who does this get over? Does it help Dallas Page? Does it help? No, it advances the storyline between an announcer who was never really that great of a wrestler against one of their cool tweener babyface NWO heel guys. Seems like a waste of Scott Hall. Uh, Savage was just there. I love Randy Savage, so I, I don't have to complain. But overall, it was just a grating, odd, silly, stupid, weird match for me. All right. I think it's when we're talking about Larry Zabisco, it's right to, to give some kudos to Tony Schiavone here. Right at the beginning of the match, he, Bobby, you mentioned it just a, uh, briefly, but they're walking down, and, and, and Zabisco and Heenan are just bagging on Liz, saying all kinds of disgusting crap, and Tony rightfully called those guys out for acting like scumbags, so good on him. It didn't quite keep kayfabe, but uh, I think Tony knew they were crossing over that line and, and had to say something, so, so good on him. Uh, I think to the match itself, maybe it's time uh, to just accept there's going to be ridiculous bookings and finishes and that the rules and the outcomes don't matter. I think I'd enjoy WCW a lot more if I just allowed for that conceit uh, and that context for everything I watch, especially in the main events. Uh, this match was fine. It, it was the first match and to really use the two rings set up effectively, and I don't think that was a coincidence. I suspect those guys said we're going to use the two rings and nobody else. Uh, but for me, DDP was the highlight of this match. Um, Hall, too, but DDP is still pretty new. He knows how to sell. He's constantly improving. I sound like a broken record. Uh, watching their exchanges, I wish Hall wasn't feuding with an announcer now because I think a DDP-Hall program could be a really good secondary or tertiary feud to, to bolster hopefully a giant Nash feud and a Hogan-Sting feud. I think DDP and Hall could work together. They're about the same size. Hall could carry him and teach him, and DDP could continue to improve. And, and DDP going over Hall would be another building block for him, ultimately. Uh, that's not going to happen, it, it looks like, but, uh, you know, I, I wish it would. So overall, you know, the announcer sold the WCW victory, but the finish just made it seem cheap and made WCW seem weak. Yeah, um, I didn't mind this match, but, yeah, it, it did kind of, you know, it kind of felt a little forgettable going in, uh, given that I think this was the match... It was exactly the match we saw at the Clash last month. Um, and, and it didn't, you know, it doesn't help when guys are just wiping out referees without consequences. I know Steve Austin does it to get a pop too. I, I get that. Um, but it doesn't It doesn't help things mean anything when, you know, two referees get knocked out and then, you know, it, it just for the sake of setting up a, a, a non-finish, um, you know, Zabisco, I mean, he's getting reactions. I mean, there's at least that. Um, you know, Jeff Darrow said there's probably better names that they could have brought in that perhaps wouldn't get quite the reactions Zabisco has been on on some of the Nitros since. Although I suspect people just popping for to someone standing up to uh, to Scott Hall and someone that can cut a promo, I suppose. Um, but yeah, the match was okay. You know, Luger's. I think Dave Meltzer said Luger's getting worse. Um, I don't necessarily disagree with that. I don't know whether he's got good to begin with. He's at least getting reactions, which is always going to help him. Um, yeah, Paige and Sarge looks like they're going to reprise that next month after having called it off a little bit in the last couple of months. And Sarge has been injured, I suppose. Um, it was fine. You know, I, I wasn't blown away by the finish, but you know, of all the of all the possible things they could have gone with, if it wasn't this, it might have been a running. Um, you know. I'd probably just about on balance take this um, as a as a match that was kind of thrown together somewhat last minute. As I say, Paige and Luger were meant to be in the main event. Um, although that that being said, I, I, as may have Paul and Sarah on another run, but there we are. Anyway, 
Here's Mark Abafa. So it's nicely time for the main event. We get the usual long reading of the rules, and it's time for our main event. It's Team NWO, Kevin Nash, Marcus Bagwell, Conan and Six versus the Four Horsemen, Ric Flair, Chris Benoit, Steve McMichael and Kurt Henning in a War Games match. Predictably, Bagwell and Benoit start off. Bagwell flexes and slaps Benoit. I'm going to say that's a bad idea. Benoit shoves Bagwell into the cage and reassuringly it nearly comes apart. Benoit goes to the top, barely has enough headroom to try, but hits and misses the headbutt anyway. The crowd charts that start chanting, We want Sting, which is great as they never let down whenever they chant that. Benoit runs at Bagwell, Bagwell backdrops him into the cage. In the shock of all shocks, the NWO win the coin toss. Conan comes in, Benoit fights them both off. We spill into the other ring and Bagwell and Conan have the control. Just but just what Benoit wants to see, the next man in is Mongo. Mongo rallies and Benoit recovers, the usual pattern. In comes Six, runs straight into an arm by Benoit. Mongo fires Six off of the ropes and fires him into the roof of the cage. Out comes Kurt Henning with his arm in a sling. Into the match comes Ric Flair. Nash gives NWO the numbers advantage Benoit charges at Nash just catches him and then chucks him into the cage the crowd once again are chanting for Sting Flair low blows 6 and Bagwell Henning enters the fight with one arm takes off the sling and reveals the ruse he's got handcuffs with him and he's attacking the four horsemen they handcuff Benoit and Mongo to the cage Nash grabs the mic asks Benoit if he wants to surrender but Benoit spits at Nash Flair hits, uh, takes a jackknife, always looks rough as he never lands flat on his back. They drag Flair to the door. Nash says to Mongo, you either quit or we get a team Flair. Mongo calls the end of the match, but then Henning does it. Anyway, Eric. <laughs> I watched this match and I didn't really write my thoughts down for a day or two because I didn't know. I, it was just so weird. I didn't know what to think, but I, I think to the match itself, uh, that was easy. You know, War Games matches are always these huge clusters, but, but literally nothing of consequence happened between the minute the bell rang and, and, and Buff and Benoit entered the, the ring to the minute Hennig came in and, and turned heel, predictably. So this match was nothing uh, of consequence until Hennig came in. Uh, the more that I got to thinking about this, though, at least in terms of, uh, of a kayfabe universe, I don't see why anybody could be mad at this. Flair's been pulling the same shit on everybody else for like 15 years. We still joke about Flair turning on Sting in 1995. Flair's really had this coming since the mid-'80s. And, and the Horsemen always lose war games, so I don't know why we're surprised they're lost here. Uh, and I, It sounds joking, but I kind of mean it seriously in those terms. Uh, still, what doesn't sit right with me is that another WCW pay-per-view ends with the, the crowd being super disappointed. That said, the pop for the Horsemen was not that great. The pop for Flair was not that great. The crowd was almost split 50-50, at least uh, as I heard it. So uh, I don't necessarily buy this argument that the Horsemen were, were, you know, the super babyface team and they got destroyed by the super heel team because the crowd reaction told me otherwise. Uh, there's still something to be said about the good guys winning from time to time. Um, if this is all building to a larger uh, development, a larger comeuppance for the NWO, that's fine. But at what point do we, you know, lose faith that there's ever going to be a moment of joy to close the show? Um, so I think who lost doesn't so much bother me as opposed to what them losing means in terms of the overall atmosphere and mood of the show and reliability that this is really entertainment more than anything else. Jeff? Yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't think the horsemen were strong enough baby faces because, 
you know, they've been heels for the last 15 years and they're not really cool, especially compared to the NWO's level of cool tweenerness. Um, and that, you know, really sticks out when Hogan's not there to take the coolness down. Um, I think this was the first time the Horsemen ever lost a coin toss in a War Games because usually they would get the advantage. And uh, I, I love the uh, notion that the Horsemen always lose the War Games, but this time they actually got screwed for once, which is, again, I, I agree, it was totally apropos. I, I didn't like the matchup from the dynamic of if the Horsemen were baby faces, you put really cool Kevin Nash, really cool Six, kind of cool Conan and Buff Bagwell in there. You're being very generous to Conan, but okay. Well, I think I think Conan's cool. I think, you know, he's got that rolling lariat. He's the Hulk Hogan of Mexico, Bob. God damn it. Wow. Anyways, I think if they'd have booked... I know Hogan has limited dates, but I think if you did a, a combination of, like, a, a couple of the guys from the NWO undercard, maybe Norton, kid to take bumps... Buff and Hogan, those guys would have been more heelish towards the Horsemen, and you would have had less of a split 50-50 crowd, which is what I picked up too. Um, another thing is I think because of that Arn Anderson angle, because of the, the heat both, you know, manufactured and, you know, shoot, um, wouldn't it have made sense for the babyfaces to actually win the coin toss and get five minutes or however many minutes of payback against say, six, start off with it being Flair and Benoit just chopping the living hell out of him and maybe just getting a bit of their face back before they ultimately lose. But the Horsemen got nothing out of this. They just looked like complete loser idiots, and they never got any revenge for their friend Arn Anderson, and that looked really silly. Uh, I did, on the positive, because I'm not going to just shred stuff, I thought Benoit was awesome. Everything he did in this match looked incredible. The first half of the match was a tremendous showcase for him. Him and Six should be immediately put into a program and have an awesome feud. Um, and, and even when they were trying to get Benoit to quit and he was, like, spitting in their faces, he came across as a legit badass. And being in this match, a main event, I feel like upped his, uh, upped his stock as a talent. Uh, maybe not as a horseman, but just as a badass Canadian guy because we're all like that. Um, you know, and to really push him as a as a guy who can just be legit. But uh, overall, the, they were just, just incredibly handicapped by the booking of that finish. Uh, and the horsemen just looked like dummies. And my last note that I made is Sting is such an asshole. Because here he is, Mr. WCW. There, as, as noted, he's being chanted for in arenas and after arenas. You know, the Steiners, maybe they've left the building. Maybe Paige and, uh, you know, Luger have left the building. But here are the, the horsemen getting beaten down. And I know Sting and the horsemen don't have a great relationship, but he couldn't rappel down from the ceiling. He carries a baseball bat. And, no, they're going to rip Ric Flair's head off by slamming it into the cage. I'm like, why is Sting a babyface? Like, he's just the guy. He's the crow. He's doing all. He's doing nothing to help anybody. It just... I don't know. I just thought Sting was an asshole. That was me going off the off the show after the after the Horseman just got totally jobbed. I was like, Sting's an asshole. So. Well, shouldn't he shouldn't he want to see Flair with a cage door slammed in his face more than well, pretty much he, anybody else? I mean, I think it, it's that whole thing. If like during the Civil War, if you were in a in like a turf war in New York, but all of a sudden you had to fight the South, you'd forget about your turf war because you had a bigger cause. So in this kayfabe, you know, land of 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 WCW versus the NWO, we have to neglect our pettiness to fight the greater evil, and the greater evil being the guys from New York. So, I, I mean, you know, I, I think I, I think Sting has a viable, logical reason in theory, 
But if it's WCW versus NWO, it, I mean, shouldn't shouldn't we forget our party lines? Jeff, does this come back to when we talk about the, the, the parody segment at the start of the month? Like, does this come back to the Horsemen should have got... They should have got their shot in at some point, but I think given when they were going, their their time for getting their retribution probably was on that Nitro rather than this show. Would that be correct? Well, yeah. Like if you're if you're going to do this finish and have Hennig turn and just totally, you know, basically disband the Horsemen, it would have been nice for them to save face, especially because Flair, out of all the top guys, will prostitute himself to lose and has completely devalued his stock over the course of the last decade by doing the jobs and being, you know, good for business and being a company guy. Um, yeah, it would have been great to see the NWO get some comeuppance. Would that have been the night, like, maybe somebody rips off that fake belly that uh, Nash had of, that was parodying Arn? Like I said, maybe it was tonight at War Games, just the first three guys in were two horsemen, and they just beat the holy hell out of an NWO guy like Nash or, or Six, but they didn't get any comeuppance, and that's just... That that's antithetical to a babyface heel program. But Jeff, if you put you, you talk about the horsemen, or well, sorry, the NWO lacking heat, heel heat. If you put two horsemen in there with one member of the NWO, doesn't that just exacerbate that problem? Well, but isn't that? But if you if you're telling the story that they're looking for their vengeance, and we're supposed to believe this coin toss is a fifty fifty, you know, toss up. It, it would be that ultimate sweet revenge that, and commentary would have to sell it. But uh oh. You know, Six is finally going to have to answer for all those tears. These are going to be real tears now. And then you show him getting chopped, and you show him being, you know, shinbreakered and just really taking an ass-whooping for what he did, or if it was Nash. Um, and I think the crowd following the storyline would appreciate that because they're finally getting one over on the NWO. Um, but that didn't happen. Yeah, an interesting note that apparently when they come up with the idea of handcuffing Benoit and Mongo to the cage, someone says, well, can we lift the cage up with them handcuffed to the side? And uh, thankfully someone else suggested, well, I quite value Chris Benoit's shoulder. Um, so no, uh, in, in that case, just bring that up while it comes up. I, not the, you know, I mean, all right, they could have gone somewhere with that. If they'd have tied them to the cage or something, perhaps they could have lifted it up. Um, the match was a non-event. Um, you know, I mean, I, I've seen five War Games matches in this run of shows we've done now. They've all been rubbish from an in-ring standpoint. Um, I don't know. Maybe they were good in the 80s, where I think they were, but they're revered by a lot of fans, but the quality's generally awful. Um, you know, I mean, admittedly, I, I think when you look at the calibre of guys involved, we, we've had, you know, we had Harlem Heat before they were Harlem Heat in one, and, you know, we had the Nasty Boys in another, and we had, you know, Mongo and guys like that in, in, in this one. Um, but, you know, for me, like, the the War Games matches are always going to be rubbish while, you know, none of the action means anything until we get to 4-on-4. Four four. Um, and the match essentially ended in this one when it got to 4-on-4. Four four. Um, and, you know, it's it's not the greatest dynamic when there's the stuff going on, the crowd are chanting, we want Sting. It's kind of a throwback to last year. They were chanting it then, too. Um... And then, you know, Henning comes out, not much of a reaction, not much heat, which isn't ideal. And then he turns, which is a bit inevitable, if nothing else. Um, and as you kind of allude to, and as we're kind of going to hear Flair allude to later in the month, like it's it's difficult to feel all that sorry for Flair, given that that's essentially a Flair move. Um, that whole thing was taken straight from the Ric Flair playbook. Um, and Eric, I don't know, just, you know, War Games, it's, uh, you know, 
it's a concept that works in the 80s when you know the the original version versions of the horsemen were around um but i don't think they've got it right in the last few years other than just occasionally having a big match like they did last year i don't think the quality is any good and i think they've they've got it more wrong than they have right yeah, I heard somebody say, describing War Games one time, that initially War Games was a match that was necessitated by a feud, and now War Games is, is a match that they have to shoehorn feuds uh, into in order to keep it running and viable. And, and it was made very clear here. They, they didn't put any emphasis on star power in this match. Uh, they didn't put any emphasis on, on, on booking between Bell and Hennig coming in. The only thing of relevance at all was what Jeff pointed out, was that Benoit had about 90 seconds to look like an absolute monster, and he did that, and, and he looks good to go. But I think this is a match, kind of like World War III that we talk about, where the idea and concept is really cool and really good and really different, but then you see it happen, and it's just an unmitigated cluster of, of irrelevant action until the last three, four, five minutes. Uh, there have been good War Games matches in the past, um, Dangerous Alliance, I think 91 or 92, um, Parker will know. That was a, probably the best War Games match there is. The initial ones at the Great American Bash Tours in the 80s, those were at least fun and bloody and kind of that gritty NWA style. But really, the vast majority of War Games matches have been like this one, where there's nothing of consequence that happens until the very end. And if we're lucky, and we were here, at least something relevant happens before the show goes off the air. So I agree with you, Bob. I think this is a concept that sounds really cool. People have a lot of fond memories of it because there have been a couple of good ones. But overall, I think it's time to bag the bag it as an annual event and only bring it in when there's a feud that fits it. And not to mention the 200-odd floor seats that they lose with the extra ring. Jeff, same question? Yeah, uh, the match you're talking about is the Wrestle War 91 War Games, which was like Sting Squadron versus, I think... It was Sid. I don't know. I don't know. I think that was the one where Pillman got like just destroyed by two straight power bombs. But I think that's uh, right. That was like the last really good one. Uh, my my indictment on War Games is, is probably a little uh, a little too uh, cynical. But if you've seen one really good War Games, you've probably seen them all. In the case where it's like heels win the coin toss, you know. Babyface sells, Babyface loses the advantage, heels do that, Babyface comes back, gets some juice, all four come in, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the edict of if you've seen one good War Games or one regular War Games, you've pretty much seen them all. The recipe never changes. And like I said, the only thing that changed in this one was that Ric Flair didn't win the coin toss. Uh, if that if that's the if that's the keys to a successful main event, uh, you know, gimmick match, why have it? It just... Uh, it didn't stop the NWO from interfering. Uh, it was just, meh. Yeah. I think it'd be quite cool if you just added an elimination stipulation to it. Um, took, a, took a little bit of relief from um, from a, a Survivor Series match. You could otherwise leave the rules the same if you wanted to. Um, if you know the, the problem right now is that they're saying, right, five minutes for the first two guys, and every two minutes a new guy comes in. So you've kind of got you know, 12, 13, 14 minutes where nothing can happen. And then it feels like anything does. And, you know, this time, like, you know, there was no real, you know, the, the match only becomes live when the last guy enters. And in this one, the match ended the minute Henny entered the ring. Um, and, yeah, like, if you added an elimination stipulation, it would add a bit more drama to it. You could end up with those uneven numbers that you get in Survivor Series matches. Well, Bob, the, the reason, sorry to cut you off, but the reason they do it the way they do it is so you, 
you know, psychologically have three babyface comebacks throughout the match. So it's two on one, second babyface comes in, hot tag. Then it's three on two, third babyface comes in, hot tag. Then you have that huge pop. So when the babyfaces were super over, and it started with Magnum and Tully, and then Arn came in. And then you have a road warrior come in and just wreck shop. That pop was so huge that for the next five minutes, they would have that babyface come back and then the heels would cut him off. And it would stoke and build and build and build until, you know, Flair and Dusty got in there. Everybody started to bleed. And then it was a scramble to see who could beat the hell out of each other first and get the finish. So I, I don't think it, I don't think an elimination is necessary. I think it's, it's more to the, to the point that you have to have over guys. And you have to have the stakes at such a level where the fans want to see these heels get the crack into them. Like that, that's that's what it has to have. It has to have you, you want to see the road warriors come in, get the hot tag, and just literally rip JJ Dillon's shoulder out of its socket, which actually happened. Yeah, um, the hot tag of Mongo isn't the uh, isn't quite the same level. It's not the road warrior pop, right? No, not quite, not quite. Eric, any more thoughts on that before we wrap up? No. Okay. Uh, Eric, your, your, your overall thoughts on this show at a score rating out of 10. Now, how much more can you say about war games? Uh, this, as I said at the outset, this was a show of two cards. Everything before and really including Giant Norton was pretty good. Um, there was a lot of excellent exposure for guys who should be in WCW's future plans. Eddie Jericho, Booker, Malenko, uh, Dragon, Mortis. I mean, the, the roster is deep. Um, all those guys had really good matches with Eddie Jericho probably being the best of the bunch. Um, it went off the rails for me, at least to some degree, beginning with the tag match, the second to last match. Uh, it's fine action. Um, but ropey WCW booking Mars the finish. Larry Zabisco's involvement with Hall when Hall should be in a program with DDP, uh, or somebody else that he can have an actual wrestling match with and not just a gimmick style, uh, feud. Um, and that, that kind of ruined it for me. Um, and as we've talked about, the, the last match, the War Games match, was a 20-minute match to set up a two-minute angle. Nothing notable happened except for Benoit. And the crowd was split 50-50 anyway, so you can't have a War Games match with the heat that is necessary to be built, like Parker laid out. When the crowd is split 50-50, it, it's, it can't happen. So this crowd was not going to accept the basic concept of a War Games match uh, from the outset. Um, I don't buy the finish. Uh, I don't buy the argument that the finish was a slap in the face or, or, or uh, you know, uh, to Flair or to anybody else. I think this, the finish made logical sense to continue building the heat to the NWO's demise. But I think the problem is within the context of the last couple of months, this is just another bummer ending, uh, which may continue to erode, I guess, the confidence of the fan of the fan base. Uh, Road Wild was like that too, and uh, so what you have is a situation where. Unless Flair can come back and look strong against some of these guys, Luger and DDP can get actual consistent wins against NWO guys. And unless Sting eventually beats Hogan clean in the middle without any shenanigans, this whole 18-month odyssey, including War Games uh, for this show, will be kind of for naught. I'm hoping WCW can see this through correctly, but I don't have any confidence that they will. Um, This show, the first half was a 7, the second half was a 3. That averages to a 5, so 5 out of 10. Jeff? Yeah, five out of ten. Any thoughts? <laughs> no, uh, the first half of the card was, I think, on average about you know seven out of ten. Third was about you know three or four out of ten. Split the difference, five six out of ten. I mean, it uh, 
I, I thought the good matches were good, not necessarily great. I thought the bad matches were more just goofy finishes that felt like, you know, politics backstage from the NWO guys. Um, I see a lot of guys with potential. I see a lot of guys that aren't being used to the fullest of their potential, which is another WCW thing. Um, I don't know. I mean, there are a couple good Haas fights, a couple good cruiser fight matches, not fights. Uh, you know, Benoit looked great, but yeah, it's, you know, five, six out of ten. Split the difference. Five point five. I'll be a little different. Oh, right. well, call me an idiot. I'm going to give this an eight. Um, uh, oh, I, for Christ! Didn't you get? Didn't you give like Canadian Stampede like a seven out of ten? No, I gave it an eight point five. Oh, okay. So this was point five, two point five, or point five less than the greatest pay per view in North American history. Okay, good to know, Bob. I think we've established you're not exactly the most impartial observer when it comes to Canadian Stampede, but you can... Oh, but when it comes to War Games, Bob, Jesus Christ, 8 out of 10. Well, I... Look, I I sit through a lot of shows for this podcast, a lot, and some of them really drag. Like, yeah, this isn't always the funnest gig in the world. You you know, admittedly, it's, it's better now than it was, say... 94, when you're, you're watching through a WCW undercard. So, like, so because there's no Dungeon of Doom, it's an 8 out of 10, is what you're saying. No, I'm getting there. I'm building to it. Because, because you know, it's there's, sometimes you'll watch shows like, oh, this is a real drag. Oh, the booking makes no sense. Oh, the wrestling's bad. Um, I thought the wrestling on the first half of this show was real good at times. Like, as in, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just good wrestling in the sense that, oh, they, they did a lot of nice moves. It was good wrestling in a in a product that made sense, in a package that made sense, in in moves and transitions and stories that, that seemed to be coherent. Um, and then, yeah, like, to me, I just thought it was a good show top to bottom. And as much as the the in-ring action the main event wasn't pretty good, I thought they, they, they nailed the conclusion of the show. Um, the angle at the end, and they didn't really discuss it actually, only discussed it more broadly. I thought the angle at the very end with, with Mongo saying, you know, yes, end it, and then Henning doing it, I thought was a, a great moment. I think that's, you know, I, I guess my credit for the show was it was enjoyable, it was booked cleanly, um, and it, it, it led a lot of things going forward. Um, you know, and, and I don't, like, you know, we, 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 we'll go back and listen to our review of Canadian Stampede. I don't think Canadian Stampede was this great show. It was a great match in front of a hot crowd. Like, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure we can easily compare the two. But I know, I, I know, Jeff, I'm talking to the wrong guy. But, yes. Well, I think, I think you're just talking to the wrong educated guy. I mean, when, it got, <laughs> when, when you're talking about an 8 out of 10 on a pay-per-view that had an overbooked Faces of Fear finish... Uh, a Mongo, or not, not a Mongo, uh, Mrs. Mongo, uh, Deborah McMichael and Jeff Jarrett finish that was screwy. Uh, you know, the main event that was screwy. You had Larry Zabisco finish that was screwy. I don't know how that was clearly booked. I, I saw a lot of, you know, uh, hinky stuff going on with those finishes that gives the viewer a little bit of pause. Uh, Canadian Stampede, on the other hand, had four top caliber matches that all delivered fairly clean finishes that were all well-booked and had the hottest crowd in North America. In there, there's, there's no universe in which those first three matches are top caliber. Come on. What, which three matches are we talking about? The uh, the Pier <laughs> 6 with uh, Cactus and, and Hunter? Or? Oh, that wasn't a Pier 6. Come on, it was only marginally better than the match the month before. Uh, uh, I'm sorry if the margins... That, those are great matches. I would put I would put Nick Foley and, uh, and Hunter Helmsley up against 
any of the matches on this card, including the cruiserweights, and say, give them 15 to 20 minutes so they'd have a better match. I'm going to cut this short now. We, we, we could keep arguing about it. I'll edit it into the show in July. But, yeah. Oh, great. I, I like this show. <laughs> Call me an idiot. All right, let's move on. <laughs> Um, Nitro, as you can see, is on the air. And before I go into this this card, I, I need to say something that that I've really never said before. And I, you know, thirteen years ago, I got into this business because of Ric Flair. I was a a minor league baseball announcer in this same city and he went to bat for me with the promoters and and I became a wrestling announcer and when I look back on what has happened to me I I credit Ric Flair and you have seen Ric Flair and what happened I can't do this show I'm sorry can't do it. You can do the show. Let's just put it I this can't way. Do the show. You can do the show. Listen. Listen. I'm sorry. No, you can do the show. That You're was. We open week number three, Somber, with a look at unconscious Ric Flair about to be on an operating table. That was actually a facelift. Tony tells he can't do the show. That's Tony, not Flair, although Flair isn't there either. We see stills of the cage match for opening with Disco and Dima Lanko and Disco falling to the Boston Crab. Next up, it's Face of Fear against the Harlem Heat with Jacqueline. Both Meg and Barbarian get Stevie Ray and Booker in a tongue and death grip to win the match. Gene welcomes DDP out to an explosive reaction. He says he has a disease and it's Randy Savage. He wants Randy Savage at Halloween Havoc. Hoover 2 Guerrero and Rey Mysterio Jr. show their skills with Ray winning with his springboard Rana before Steve Regal gets a shot at Alex Wright's TV title. Regal takes charge throughout but German wins with a German. Ray Traders out to tell the NWO they're in for some justice and Conan arrives to take on the Giant. Conan stalls while getting in some offence but Giant chokes arms in for the win. The Brain joins the death round number two, still no Shivoni. He says the horseman will never die. Dance and Stevie Richards is out to face Diamond Dallas Page. They're pretty even but Page gets the cutter for the win. Afterwards Raven arrives to beat down Stevie then goes through the crowd. Wrath and Mortis arrive and Bobby tries his best to cover the fact he calls Kurt Henning perfect. Vandenberg guys have their big have hit the big time as they face the outsiders. Wrath almost nearly beats Nash with the big boot, but the Wolfpack retain. Nash chopping his crotch in time with the three count. Challenging Hogan's big lost man from last week, Larry tells us Eric Ripoff is on his way. He brings out the entire NWO to the ring and Hogan holds up Hey McMahon, bite me sign. They all welcome Kurt Henning to Flair's entrance music in a Flair robe. As he says he's proud to join, a laser point from a fan nails him on the temple with a soda cup. Henning presents Hogan with the robe. Hollywood says it's a perfect day. Savage accepts Paige's challenge and Hogan talks Piper. 
We cut to a great WCW history package between Hogan and Piper. Eddie then beats Ultimo Dragon. In the main event, it's Henning and McMichael. Buffer's out to announce and Mongo holds his own. He channels the dirtiest player in the game, but he misses the tackle and Henning wins with a fisherman suplex. Henning is the new US champion. Week 4 and Tony's back to tell us about a pending landmark announcement for Roddy Piper. Bischoff interrupts to warn Larry Zabisco off interfering again. Larry throws to last year's footage of Bischoff getting jackknifed from the stage. Opening contest is Mysterio Jr. and Silver King. Any distraction not enough to stop Ray retaining. Next, Hugh Morris takes on a debuting Bill Goldberg looking like a cyborg Steve Austin. The newbie looks rough and ready, even kicking out of Morris's moonsault and doing a showboating backflip of his own. An almost bulldog-like vertical suplex gets Goldberg the debut upset. Post-match, Gene tries for a word, but the man walks to the back. The Nitro girls dance and we get Disco Inferno versus Alex Wright. They try to do a double crossbody and a fluky Disco lands on Wright for the TV title win. They then do a ham-fisted attempt at shooting on why Disco left with Jackie. Why? Because WCW... Hall and Six arrive, run down Luger, run down Larry. When Lex doesn't answer the challenge, Larry steps up, but backs away from a two-on-one. Hall then gets Hector Garza. Hall tries to intimidate Mark Curtis, but Garza gets the roll-up for another shot win. After the match, both Hector and Curtis then get the edge. Sonny Ono leads out his AAA team, and Hoovy gets the pin on the Parker for the eight-man win. Gene brings out Piper. He announces Luger versus Hall at Halloween Havoc with Zabisco as official referee. He then says he'll end Hogan in a cage. He calls then W.O. the N.W.A. and we're out. The face of fear beat the Steiners and Hogan arrives fully flare robed minus the sleeves. He bigs up Henning, calls out the quote-unquote old guys entirely without the irony and says Piper's got no chance next month. Savage faces Stevie Richards again. Stevie loses and Raven comes in for the spoils. Conan and Norton take on Harlem Heat but it's thrown out as a DQ for NWI interference. The Nitro girls are out and it's main event time. Henning tries his best to get an entertaining match out of Jeff Jarrett retaining with his don't call it a perfect plex. Afterwards the NWO join him for his perfect win and they celebrate to take us off the air. How are you feeling? Are you, are you, <coughs> I, and I know this is, I'm not talking about emotionally right now. Uh, physically, how are you doing? Can you physically, hear me? Uh, I would be a liar if I told you I couldn't be better. But, uh, you know, Tony, time is precious. I don't want to take a lot of your time. I'm, I'm respectful what, Rick, of the fact what, that... whatever you need. Go ahead. We want to hear I you. am respectful. Well, thank you. I'm respectful of the fact that uh, you acknowledged... Uh, my injury several weeks ago, I was not able to see this show live. As you know, I had just come out of surgery. Right. But I've watched the tape back ten times. I had to see what Henning did to me. Uh, I had to start thinking long, hard, and serious about Ric Flair and where he was going. And then I started thinking about the words you you put out so eloquently. And then I thought about what Larry Zabisco said right behind you, that I was the dirtiest player in the game and that no one should feel sorry for me because I've been there, seen it, done it, and want to do it again. So let me say this. I want to address several issues tonight, Tony. Go ahead. On top of thanking you, I want to thank Kurt Henning. As strange as that may seem, I want to thank Kurt Henning for giving me the wake-up call that sometimes... Athletes need to go to another level or to succeed in the future. 
whether I'm guilty of complacency, whether I'm guilty of taking uh, day-to-day situations lightly, uh, I really don't know at this point. But I have been guilty, for sure, of being caught off guard. And in this sport, when you're caught off guard, you pay the price. Henning beat me up. Nash beat me up. Six beat me up. Conan beat me up. Bagwell beat me up. Five guys beat me up. You know why? Because I was stupid enough, complacent enough, and that far off the razor's edge to let it happen. Four years ago, I'd have left Henning laying a week before that match happened. That's complacency. That's the wake-up call. So, Kurt Henning, know this. The stitches are out next week, and Ric Flair will be right back in your face the day that he can be there on Nitro. We start off Nitro with the Nitro Girls while Tony starts up the ramp to Halloween Havoc. We get another nice video package for the month focusing on Paige and Savage. Our opening contest is DDP and Buff and today builds the story of both finishers. After a Vince distraction and a ref bump, Dallas Page hits the diamond cutter for the win. There's a lovely Mike Tanay package that's coming in the next few weeks looking at the heritage of Lucha. Rey Mysterio Jr. takes on a debuting mass El Cariente who cuts an awfully similar shadow of Eddie Guerrero. Rey wins and Eddie's mask comes off in the aftermath. Giant builds his main event with Henning. We see Sting not in the rafters but in the crowd. Bill Goldberg's back to face Barbarian. Tanay gives us a skinny. He's the former Falcon from Oklahoma. He doubles his W column and again Gene struggles for a word. He does however get Larry over and Zabisco tells all he's going to be calling it down the middle next month. Shivani talks of his emotional regrets from the other week but announces a flare update is pending for the coming hour. This goes out with his TV goal to defend against Hoovy. Alex Wright arrives in Luminous Canary casuals to help Guerrero, but Jackie helps Disco and he retains. Macho starts off hour two with a Piper warning him off against Paige. Jarrett arrives to face McMichael, but the fan wearing a Liverpool top proves far more interesting. They run through the usual and the commentators focus on Deborah. Can't exactly blame them. They seem to last an age and Jarrett wins. We see the first winners of the Nitro Party Contest, a group of local doctors. The girls dance for Six arrives with an on-crutches Scott Hall. Six Pack has a really decent TV match with Jericho with his new music and now has brand new moves. The Lion Tame up Lion Salt and the Lion Heart Swing. Hall holds off the ref with a crutch but Sabisco evens the odds. Chalk this one down in the NWO non-finish column. That's more of an entire chart at this point. We hear from Flair via phone, he thanks Henning for the reality check. He'll be back in the ring. He calls out Hogan and calls Benoit the best in the world. He wants to break up the horseman and set him free. The doctors from earlier show their Nitro Party video. It's as cringy as it sounds. Bischoff run down Sting and straight face tells us Hogan's been to the cans to promote his TNT TV movie. You can also buy a Buff Bagwell hat for 20 bucks if you're so inclined. Raph loses out to Lex Luger and we get a non-finish to Giant versus Henning for Sting arrives to take out the end. Second issue. Okay. Hulk Hogan. You know, Hogan, when Henning got down on his knees in Charlotte, North Carolina and gave you my robe, they might as well have driven a truck that said NWO through my home. And I'm that serious about this remark. Our careers, Hogan, have paralleled each other 
We have wrestled against each other. We have drawn huge gates. We have been on a tier that very few athletes in any sport ever arrive at. But let me assure you of this. I never heard one time in the past 20 years anybody say that you could wear my shoes, fill my shoes. You damn sure can't wear my robe, pal. And that goes right to you. I will come back to get that robe. That is a promise. You will regret the day you stuck your nose in hitting to my business. The third point is this. Arn Anderson, my best friend, as you know, is down, right. never to return. I want to take this opportunity to thank two of the greatest athletes and people that have ever come into my life. I'm talking about Chris Benoit, the crippler, and Steve Mongo McMichael. There's no doubt in anybody's mind that pound for pound, I said the night of the pay-per-view, Chris Benoit is the greatest wrestler pound for pound in our sport today. He deserves freedom. He doesn't need to worry about taking care of Ric Flair, and that's what he's done. He put his hand out there. He stuck by me. He worried about me. He tried to protect me. He stood up for me. Well, that doesn't work. That's crap in this business, and you get it back the same way. Chris Benoit, I want you to go your own way because you deserve it. You're that good. You're that talented. Steve McMichael, on a more personal note, because we have become very close friends, you, my friend, are wearing a Super Bowl ring on your right hand. How many athletes in life can say they wear a Super Bowl ring? That makes you the very best, the very best at what you do for one day in your life. You're an all-pro defensive tackle with the Chicago Bears that came into our sport and came into the high tier. You've been successful, but you've only just begun. You are Steve Mongo McMichael, and I want you to go your own way now. In other words, Tony, I am asking those guys to allow me to break up the horsemen because I have personal business to take care of, and I don't want them to have to interfere or worry about me and my future any longer. Rick, you're, you're, disma you're, you're dismantling the horsemen? I mean, Tony, I'm asking for a great period. You and I both know that the four fingers will be in the air for decades to come. There's no doubt about that. But I am giving Steve Mongo Michael his head. He doesn't need Ric Flair. Chris Benoit doesn't need Ric Flair. We're good friends. We're athletes. We hung out together. We wrestled together. They need to go their own direction. They need to succeed on their own, and they need not worry about taking care of me because I can promise you, Tony, what's going to take place in the future will not only be immoral, it will be illegal. When and where, I can't promise you, but, Tony, I can tell you this right now, and I hate to get wound up. It hurts my head to make me talk this fast. But I will... I will never be too sweet, pal, because, man, I am too good, and I am going to prove that point. And I once again thank you, Kurt Henning, and the entire NWO for giving me the wake-up call. Now, guys, I'm serving your notice. I'm coming back. I'm going nowhere. Don't dust off any shelf for me. Larry Zabisco, do it, buddy. Commissioner Piper, not my best friend, but, brother, you do it. Diamond Dallas Page, you do it. But don't do it for Ric Flair. Do it for yourself. Giant, tonight, do it because you're a man. And Kurt Henning needs his butt kicked. But save a little bit for me. Okay. Tony Schiavone, I love you all. Thank okay, you. We love you too, Rick. All right.
coming out the TVs. Fair amount going on. Uh, you know, five, five nitros this month, and fucking hell, nitro really are being very lapsed now. You know, the the idea of a two-hour nitro show is just a concept these days. It's very rarely a reality. You know, it starts at eight o'clock and it finishes sometime between ten and eleven. Sometimes it's ten past, sometimes it's twenty-five past. But these shows are getting longer. Let's say that. Anyway, lots going on. Not you know, not the most noteworthy stuff. You know, it was interesting that well, as as we said in this, Flair was Flair was written off because of going in for a facelift apparently, um, which happened the next day because they opened up Nitro the next night after the show with oh, it wasn't a still technically, but it was like this slow moving kind of two or three second shot of Flair's head and they basically had like pen marks all over his face so they could operate on him and all that kind of thing. He looked like he'd been. Yeah, beaten up. They kind of opened up with that, and then we get this really nice pro from Shivoni, and he says, you know, I'm, you know, Flair was redoing the business, and and you know, I can't do this show and whatnot. And the rest of the month is what it is. And so we got that weird thing with with Jacqueline and Disco Inferno that was just strange. Um, but really, the, I think there are two things to focus on. They're both from the the the, the final Nitro of the month. Um, we, we start with the the, the Rick Flair phone-in promo that you would have just heard. Um, apparently, it was meant to take place on the Nitro before, but I think given that the given the way the calendar's working, I think it it, it, it did them well to hold it off for a week. Uh, and Flair got a lot covered in that promo, basically talking about you know how. How what happened and kind of you know lit a fire in him again and you know how he he wanted to thank Kurt Henning for kind of you know waking him up and how you know if I was also Rick we, we talk about reasons perhaps why there was wasn't so much sympathy on Rick Flair as perhaps there would have been at the pay per view. Flair said if it was two years ago I'd have done it but I'd have downed him a week before that kind of thing it was as a as a warning shot rather than anything else. Um, and then Flair goes on to talk about his ambitions and whatnot. We'll come on to the stuff with Hogan um, after we discuss the, the main event segment. Um, and Flair also went on and basically said, yeah, you know, I'm going to be off for a while. Um, I don't want the horsemen looking, you know, looking over their backs, that kind of thing. You know, he went on to, to praise Benoit and essentially, for the time being at least, kind of disbanded the horsemen. Um, talk about, you know, essentially like seven hours of Nitro since the pay-per-view. Um, probably one of the few memorable things from it. This was a really, really cool uh, promo. Uh, it was completely different than anything that I've seen Ric Flair do, or at least that I can remember him doing um, in the last several years. He And I think the context of him doing it after taking the speeding, after not being able to see the writing on the wall with Hennig, after his best friend Arn Anderson retires. You know, Flair, you know, the aging veteran, um would be contemplative and would be reflective and would be uh, kind of nostalgic for for their uh, for their prime, and and Flair is that here. He is that fighter who, Bob. I think you talked about it uh, just last month with with his match with uh, with Six at Road Wild. The we we never see the per we never realize the person's over the hill until they're long they've long crested it, and I think this promo brings that into kind of a shoot reality kayfabe mix of I think Ric Flair now may realize that he he's not the Ric Flair of 1983 or 1989 or even 1993 when he was having those awesome matches with Vader this is this is an older this is a weaker this is a damaged Ric Flair who now realizes that he became complacent and he became vulnerable because he became content with his success and with what he had been. And he was trying to recapture uh, the glory that he had in his prime. 
a Ric Flair coming back with this knowledge, without anything to lose, a bottomed-out Ric Flair, somebody who is not credible anymore, at least in storyline terms, that's a Ric Flair that I'm very interested to see have a nice program to cap off what's been an awesome career. If we can get two or three years of Ric Flair who who knows he's over the hill, who changes his style, who who doesn't care about rules or outcomes or anything like that, but really just wants to to get his revenge and to make people realize that Ric Flair is one of the best damn performers that have ever happened and he'll stop at nothing to prove it. I'm really excited for this. If they're truly doing a Ric Flair reset here and he's not going to be the nature boy, he's going to be Ric Flair and, and I'm I'm good and I'm, I'm tough. I can really get behind this. I, I'm supportive of it and I think the promo really had a lot to do with uh, uh, with that. Good Good job all around. One of the best things on Nitro that I can remember. Jeff? Yeah, I thought it was a really uh, genuine and passionate promo. Um, and there seems to be a lot of quality programming to book for Flair coming out of this. If you look at guys like, obviously, Hennig, and if they're going to do something with Hogan, I still think there's a lot of legs with him and, and Six, and that could elevate a guy like Six. Um, I, I'm not sure if I want to see Ric Flair if he's not being Nature Boy Ric Flair because that is such a, a pro wrestling institution. Um, my main issue is that I just think I think Flair's been, and this is this is as much on Flair as it is WCW, but he's just been so devalued and undermined by jobbing so many times, whether it's to Sting or to Hogan or whoever. Like he always has has let himself lose, and then you know he he becomes less and less over to the fans. And then what you end up happening is he's got the bleached white hair, so he already looks old. Now you have him doing a promo where he's saying, yeah, I didn't see this coming, maybe I've lost a step and all this stuff. And I'm like, I don't know how this really helps revamp him down the line uh, when, you know, he and his, his guys couldn't run roughshod over the NWO for a big babyface comeback. Now he's saying, well, I'm going to let, you know, Benoit go do his thing and Mongo go do his thing and I'm going to come back. It just kind of makes him I, – I never think you – I always think you never want to make your, your babyfaces look uh, weak. And with Flair, the whole, the whole thing is that he – if he comes off as vulnerable, yeah, that's maybe kind of cool. It's a different Ric Flair. But with the white hair and the just the, the the verbiage that he has, plus the fact that he drops a lot of falls, it, it doesn't make it doesn't scream top guy. It screams screams almost like guy to give the rub to go work with the top guy. It seems like a, a de-escalation of Flair, and I don't know. I'm not, I wasn't the promo was great, but I don't like the trajectory for Flair. I haven't liked the trajectory for Flair for a while. Um... You know, I, I think the last time Flair, yeah, you know, and it may be because he's just not at that level anymore. Um, although you know, as is pro wrestling, like you, you long, you can long stay at the top even long after you started falling off the cliff. Um, but I don't think Flair's been going anywhere since his feud with Savage concluded last year. Um, you know, we had that run where he was hurt for a while, where he was endorsing Jeff Jarrett. Oh God, that run. Um, and then he's been knocking about with the horse and for a while, he, you know, he's been doing that stuff with Six and he had the kind of thing with, with Piper and that kind of thing. And now he's got this thing set up with Henning and it's like, you know, the, if you can't present Flair as the top guy, I, I almost don't want to present him at all. Um, that being said, I, I like this change in direction. As in, I, I talk about Flair, kind of, I don't, not really liking what he's done for a while. I feel like this has given him a purpose, and I don't think he's had a purpose for a while. Um, you know, while Hogan's been champion, and while Flair and Hogan's been a thing they've kind of done to death, they can't really go back to it. Although we'll come to that in a sec. 
Um, and so he's kind of just been floating about and just letting the action come to him. And it's not always ideal. Particularly now he's this, you know, essentially a baby face. Um, you know, I know he works, sort of works the heel against Piper, but the problem is that you keep running the Carolinas so much, he's always going to get cheered. Um, but I like how, you know, he basically, he, he set up a, he set up a purpose, he established a beef, and I, I'd almost like him to come back and say, I know my time's almost up. I know I'm not the guy I was 10 years ago. And yes, you know, I know to a point he doesn't want to call himself old. And I know to a point if he's, you know, I'm writing a piece for a site at the moment about how, you know, Ric Flair, Terry Funk was almost um, life imitating art in ECW this year when they kept calling him old so much people started to believe it. So you don't want Flair to come out and basically call himself over the hill. But basically say, look, I haven't got a lot left, but I've got two goals left. I want to pick off Hennig, and then I want to pick off Hogan. And we'll come to that in a sec. And then that's basically his retirement tour. He feuds with Hennig for a few months, picks him off. Then, you know, once Sting's got the title, Hogan against Flair is something you can do, and that can be Flair's final run. Can he down Hogan one more time? Then he downs Hogan, and then he retires. Would be, I think, a logical way to go. I don't think it's in anyone's interest, other than perhaps Ric Flair's bank balance, to to keep Ric Flair wrestling, you know, at all slash more than once or twice a year, while he's while he's not work, while he's you know at this level of performance. Um, we will discuss it now. I'll shut this in discussion to the end. Um, Eric Flair and Hogan is is something that wasn't really on anyone's radar for a while. And then they did the thing on Nitro where Henning basically, you know, this was after, you know, Flair hasn't been on television at least since uh, since the pay-per-view. He, he appeared via phone on the final Nitro. Um, and Henning hands Hogan Flair's robe and then the next week Flair's wearing, Flair, Hogan's wearing the robe and he's cut the arms off. Um, and, and Flair kind of in his promo basically said, I take that personally and that kind of thing. Um, Eric, Flair and Hogan in 98, I... I'm not feeling that. It doesn't sound great on paper. Um, I'm, I'm me though. I'm not a work rate guy so much as a, a, a good match guy. And we saw a match a couple of months ago between Ric Flair and Roddy Piper um, that went I think over ten minutes, and they had the crowd in the palm of their hand the entire time. And the match, I doubt even I doubt either guy broke a sweat, but the crowd was into it. I was into it. It stood out on an otherwise really good card. I think that was back at Bash at the Beach, uh, and that match had a lot of competition, and it stood out. Uh, there's, I don't think anybody would, would contend that Hulk Hogan at this point is a much better worker than Roddy Piper, and Ric Flair is a much better worker than Roddy Piper. And if there's three guys in pro wrestling who know how to get a crowd, how to manipulate a crowd, it's Piper and Flair and Hogan. So I think while the the idea in a vacuum of Hulk Hogan versus Ric Flair in 1998 sounds like an antiquated idea between two guys who are well past their prime, giving those two guys an opportunity to really build towards something and work what would ostensibly be Ric Flair's final major program, I'm kind of excited by it because I don't need flips and I don't need dives and I don't need you know chain wrestling in a main event. I don't really need it at all. I just need two guys who know how to manipulate a crowd to work a, a logical program, a logical match. And if there's two guys that I'm confident can do that, even with limited in-ring capacity, it's Hogan and Flair. I, I, I'd like to see if they can do it. Jeff? 
Yeah, um, I'd respectfully disagree, if only because, I mean, aside from the fact that I think both of their, especially Hogan's best days are behind him, Hogan doesn't really like to do jobs, and particularly his record with Flair doing jobs hasn't been pristine. Uh, and Flair is the babyface going after, you know, a heel Hogan, if that's if that's the role that's going to be reversed. Just feels like a lot of DQs and a lot of schmoz finishes that just feel sloppy. And if Flair's on his last legs and is going to do, like, a one-last-run type deal, um, yeah, it doesn't have to be, you know, great work rate matches, but I think, you know, after he, he, he deals with, with Kurt Hennig, I'd prefer him going after guys and help elevate a guy like, say, a Benoit or a Scott Hall, who's doesn't really need the elevation, but a guy who could carry his weight and have a decent match and not be bad, not be not be too boo-boo faced to lose. And I think with Hogan, you always have that problem. Even if they had Savage and Flair and switched the dynamics, because Savage was, has always been the babyface in those feuds, it'd be something different. And you'd have Savage, you know, heal it up, and Flair could, you know, talk about Elizabeth and all that crazy stuff that they always do, but change the dynamic. But Hulk Hogan has a heel against Ric Flair. It's just, man, he was a heel when he was working WCW against Flair as a babyface in 94, 95. It's just, the, you know, nobody had told Hogan. Uh, to see it again, now that Hogan's got all this stroke with the NWO and blah, 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 it just feels like, I don't, I don't think it really benefits Flair, and I think just Hogan's too selfish for it to work. Yeah, you might be right. I mean, I, I I I don't like the prospect of Flair and Hogan in '98. I just think that if you know, if, if we're talking about Flair wrapping it up, it, it's not the the least logical way to go. If you convince Hogan to put him over going out the door, if you can, Hogan's gone over to Piper. Admittedly, Piper has as, as much creative control as Hogan does, so sorry he had to give there. Um, but if you can convince Hogan to put him over in his final match, um, you know. Maybe, and again, easier said than done, admittedly. Um, I just don't know, like, you know, Flair isn't the wrestler he was even three or four years ago, and neither is Hogan. Um, Flair's deteriorating quite a lot, he's still over, but t- to me, of all the possible places you could go, I don't know that Hogan and Flair, as you quite rightly say, because it, unless it is Flair going out in style, and Hogan says, okay, it's your retirement match, go on, I'll do it. If it is just Hogan and Flair in a feud, it is going to be a lot of Schmoz finishes. I don't know if that helps either of them. Um, but equally, I, I think they are setting up for what happens January, February, March when Sting has the title. What do we do with Hogan? I think that's what the team themselves up for, which kind of makes sense. Although my, my thought would be, you know, depending on how the finish goes, and they're talking about the, the finish in December being of a, a fuck-up involving... Hall and or Nash costing Hogan the title and then you can send Hogan away for a while and then bring him back to oppose those guys although as we said in the news I I get the feeling a lot of people are going to be reluctant to take Hogan out of the NWO if Hogan stays in the NWO and you can't put opposite Sting him against uh, Flair probably makes some sense given where they're going I just to me they could both do better in 98 um, and to me it's like we got the money that we could out of it in 94, and it was a good feud in 94. Um, I don't know. Like We're talking about Flair looking old. I don't know that I'd be putting him against Hogan, but, but there we go. One place to finish at uh, the very end of the month, the very the, the final few minutes of the final Nitro of September. Uh, the main event between John and Kurt Henning. 
no clear winner, obviously. The NWO run out, start beating up Giant. Sting, run, Sting walks out, he didn't repel from the ceiling this time, it's the real Sting. Gets in the ring, dumps the bat outside of the ring, and then just for the first, probably the first actual time, just starts fighting the NWO. And Jeff, the crowd just went with it, and I think we can finally say that Sting against Hogan, two and a half, three months out, we're finally starting to get the wheels in motion for that now. Yeah, it's about bloody time, eh? Uh, yeah, it is. I mean, it's great work if you can get it. If you're Sting, I mean, not taking those bumps, he's saving up his body, he's got the biggest, probably the biggest match in WCW history uh, coming up when when he meets when he finally meets Hogan because you've had these promised, you know, guys who were going to dethrone Hogan, whether it was the the hot shot night with Luger where Luger won the title or or the various Giant or whoever Savage Piper. Uh, Sting has always been that kind of that was the the destination point, and uh, the crowd ate it up. It was about time, and you know, let's hope that everything goes to plan. Eric, this was so much better than anything that's been on a WCW pay per view in, in so many months. This was really cool, and Sting looked great. And they built him up to be this with, with such an aura, and and was such a long, long time out of the ring, and such a distance from that. Uh, surfer Sting character, or even the tweener Sting with the black hair with the colorful trunks, um, that the, the crowd had no choice, and we had no choice but to buy into the fact that he could take on the, the entire NWOB team and, and clear the ring with them and look like a total killer. And, and it was so good and so cool and executed well. Sometimes these one guy fights off 10 can look really hokey and staged and formulaic, and this just looked like one guy taking no prisoners against a bunch of dudes who, who couldn't hang with him. And it was r- really good, really great. And if they're just going to tease the Sting action, you know, he's not going to be in a match, hopefully, before he, he fights Hogan. I think that would kind of ruin the aura of, of what they're doing. But if he can just come in every once in a while and wreck shop like this and, and, and remind everybody what a badass he is, that's going to be really neat. This was executed very well. And I think the timing of it uh, was good, too, because it allowed the, the whole horseman angle to, to be in the rearview mirror and now they can put all their eggs in the sting basket. Yeah, it's you know, um, I don't know quite how they've managed it. I don't know quite how they've managed to keep them apart for so long and not kind of not burn people out on it. Just kind of almost get people like, well, come, on, what are we waiting for, guys? You know, they seem to have really built this. They've they've teased it a lot, and they've you know, Jeff, as you say, like Sting must be loving it. The guys that worked a match in a year must feel fantastic. It's like he just gets to travel around, go in the gym. You know, sometimes it, you know, probably he's not scared of heights. He gets to stand in the top of his for a while, rappel down, look a bit menacing, then walk off and then get on a plane again and go somewhere else. Um, you know, and, and they've done a real good job just kind of, you know, really find that fine line between teasing it and not making it look really hokey and silly that that Sting would wait so long, and Sting's done a great job too. I mean, he deserves a lot of credit. I know in theory he's not doing a lot, but he's not, you know, for for as much ambiguity that he's been throwing out there, he's managed to make it work. Um, and yeah, I, I just thought it was great. Like, it was, uh, you know, I've actually got Hogan and Piper coming up in a few weeks. You know, Hogan's not going to be on the November show, so it's like, okay, we finally need to start getting things going. And it's interesting to see, you know, there's probably 12 Nitros between now and Starcade. Um, you know, 12 two-and-a-half-hour shows, seemingly. 
Um, you know, but they've done a good enough job kind of keeping it going without really doing anything for the last six or seven months. Like, you know, three more isn't probably going to hurt them. Um, and yeah, I don't think they could hold this for a second longer. But I think come December, it sounds like people are ready. Crowd are baying for Sting. Um, I like that they perhaps resisted the temptation to have Sting have a couple of tune-up matches in the meantime. Um, as, as much as it felt like at one point they were just going to have him mow through every possible not name, just reject them all before getting to Hogan. They thankfully got rid of that. Um, and yeah, I, I just think that the... You know, whether it's perfect or not, I don't know. But the fact is, is that Sting attacks someone for the first time, the crowd exploded. And when they do that, you can't, you can't really say they got it wrong. Uh, is how we'll, how we'll end that and how we'll end the show. A big thank you to Jeff Parker. Jeff, thank you very much. Thank you, Bob, as always. And to Eric Landstrom. Eric, thank you very much. Thanks, Bob. Good to be here. Uh, Eric, where can people find you on Twitter? I am on Twitter at Modern Day Lawyer, uh, but please direct your energies to the Patreon account. Thank you very much. Speaking of Patreon, for five bucks a month, you'd like early access to shows like this, or just say thank you for us going through the highs and lows of wrestling of the mid to late 90s. You can do so at patreon.com forward slash wrestling 20 RS. Links on our website in the podcast and in the podcast description. Three of the shows for you this month across two other volumes. Volume number two, part one, takes the WWF looking at Ground Zero. Volume two, part two, takes the, the WWF looking at one night only and the night that Steve Austin finally stunned Vince McMahon. Volume number three, takes the ECW, looking at the ECW mole story, didn't really discuss it much but the uh, that got a lot of discussion in terms of Todd Gordon attempting to help WCW out and getting some of their, uh, some of the ECW talent to sign in Atlanta, that worked out well uh, and also the ECW as good as it gets, pay view, we are on Twitter at Wrestling20RS, I'm on Twitter at Bobby Bamba, uh, everything else you require is on the website Wrestling20RS.com and that'll do that this has been it for volume number one of September the September 1997 edition of the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast and until next time goodbye